What's happening, weirdos? I thought we would try something new during the old quarantine, the old teen, the old teen. Uh, This is Teacher Appreciation Week number one. I've recorded two of these so far. I've been thinking a lot about teachers during the quarantine. I know it's incredibly hard with uh, virtual classrooms, uh, teachers like my sister-in-law that are teaching from home while they're also taking care of their kids, um, and also just sort of having some time to reflect on some people that really shaped my life, and not just wanting to celebrate them, but also share them uh, with you guys. Um, I know you guys, I'm guessing, had some great teachers. Here are some of mine. (laughs) And not just an interview, but really the two of us talking about some of the work Uh, that changed our lives and and shaped our psyches and all that good stuff. So we have it down, and so other people can, like you, hopefully can enjoy it. Um, This is Mr. Brown, as I call him. His name is Warren Brown. I'll never call him Warren, uh, because he's Mr. Brown. He's my teacher, Mr. Brown. Uh, From my high school, Lexington High School, I graduated in 97, and uh, I started taking his classes, I think, around 96, 97, those two years, I think. Um, so this is our chat. It's brought to us by our friends uh, at Charlotte's Web, charlottesweb.com slash weird. Get yourself some CBD Calm gummies. We could all use some Calm gummies. Use promo code KEEPITCRISPY19 for 10% off. It's also brought to us, speaking of wonderful plant allies, from our friends at Noni New Age who make a wonderful Tahitian Noni juice. Tahitian noni is a superfruit known for its medicinal properties. It's been used by healers for thousands of years as an ancient health remedy, and it's scientifically proven to boost immune activity, naturally enhance energy, and support overall wellness. Of course, I was skeptical. It seems like a lot to put on a juice, but it turns out they have published and peer-reviewed studies of clinical double-blind trials with placebo that show four ounces twice a day increases your NK cell, that's your natural killer cell count, by 30%, helping your immune system stay powerful and robust. It's uh, a little bit tart, it's a little bit sweet, because it's got noni juice and blueberry juice in there, 275 nutrients and phytonutrients, including key vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. I take it in conjunction with their supplement Cell Defense, which is clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation. Normally, a one liter bottle of Tahitinone Jew and a bottle of the supplement Cell Defense would be $100, but you can get both for $40 and show your support of this podcast. It's a great feeling every uh, time I do it, twice a day, giving me that sense that I'm doing something healthy and good for my body to keep itself working at optimum capacity. Go to noninewage.com slash weird40 and uh, try that or try the uh, Calm Gummies. This is the best way to give back to this show. Uh, you know, we don't have spon- we don't have donations, but if you want to support the show, show it some love, just try one of the Pete's Picks. And if you're a teacher, this episode is especially for you. And if you're a teacher, hang in there. Stay strong. Uh, I hope the underlying message of this and the other teacher appreciation episodes is what you guys do is important. It matters. It changes lives. So stay strong and enjoy my talk with Mr. Brown, teacher appreciation number one. Get into it. Mr. Brown. (laughs) Brown. How many years and you look exactly the same? Oh my goodness, you do too. 
<laughs> I can't you believe still it. Have that, you still have that hair. That, well, uh, that... It, you know, if you, if you shake your head, it sort of goes up kind of like uh, Tulula Bankhead, which is before your time. Tulu? <laughs> Tulula Bankhead. She was an actress who had, uh, had the, this sort of uh, peekaboo hair that she flip oh her my head. goodness that is wonderful and you still have that too i it's because so, of the quarantine i haven't cut my hair the entire time really so, i would think that you would if you have your own tech person i would <laughs> think you'd have somebody who would come in and cut your hair for you <laughs> i i do have a wonderful person that cuts my hair because i i am a fancy boy but she is maybe the most cautious covid person of all time. Uh, so she is not, I'm not going to see her for another year and a half. At least. Uh, uh, I was actually wondering, first of all, it's so wonderful to see you. I can hear you and see you perfectly, but I'm so happy to see you. I, I, I'm, I always skip this part, no matter who the guest is to just say, thank you for taking the time. I'm thrilled to see you. I, I, I was looking through our old emails. I've asked you to do the podcast a couple times actually, because and I'll never tire of saying this. When I look at my life, I'm 41 now. Now I can look oh, back. You're a mere buckaroo. <laughs> <laughs> I look from back. The, the, from the vantage point of 75 years. Oh, uh, my you, goodness. You, uh, you're lucky that your your glands are just beginning to kabong. <laughs> <laughs> but you must be you you can't be 75 because as a teacher, you've frozen as a certain age in hundreds and hundreds of consciousnesses. So that has to count for something. You're the only one that knows you as 75. I remember you're permanently Mr. Brown, ageless. I have no I, I still have no guess. I could do the math now as to how old you were, because you were a teacher. You were this like celebrity authority, especially to someone like me who yields to authority. I, I know I was uh, sometimes rambunctious, but like if you were a teacher, I believed that mythology. I was like, that is a teacher that matters. So my teachers mattered. But well, when I was- oh, This occasion, on this occasion, I'm in your classroom now. That's true. And you have to behave or I'll, I'll sit you alphabetically <laughs> and lecture, which is something that you would do. Um, I just want to say up top, I've been thinking about it and my life, not just my life, my creative life, my whole life was shaped so much by you and by your class. And I was just like, I have to have Mr. Brown on uh, to thank you and to talk with you. And also as a way of thanking all teachers, I was just sort of like, this is what people are talking about. And I couldn't find that email I wrote you, but I was like, I wonder if he knows that I, I can't be the only one that I'm like, it was Mr. Brown. Like I learned how to learn. I learned that it was okay to learn. I learned that it was okay to be smart. I learned that it was okay to be vulnerable. I learned that it was okay to be creative. Like I learned all these things that like, no offense to Boston, I wasn't really getting a lot of that. <laughs> like, I, in my memory, from, from my social circles, maybe a little bit, but like my family, they did their best. But I didn't have a lot of male, specifically role models, that were like, 
talking about vulnerability, talking about film, that thought it was cool to read, that thought it was cool to be eloquent, and, and that shared that with enthusiasm. So they're, they're, almost all of it is right up top. You changed my life. And I was like, I want to talk with you. I want to have a conversation with you uh, on the record. That's very sweet. That's very sweet. And um, I, I think I'm a big believer in vocation. And I'm a big believer in being led. I know that I had teachers. I was lucky enough to have teachers uh, who fit the description of what you just said, and and I always felt that I was led to them, and and certainly you're. I mean, you were already a stand-up comedian when you were in my <laughs> class. So uh, I also, Mr. Brown, have a troubling. I have a very, as I've demonstrated to you before, because I remember everything you said. But as a whole, I sort of don't remember a lot of high school. So I bet anything you remember. Uh, will be news to me, I bet. I remember what you said, but I don't really have a strong memory of being anything in high school. I don't remember. I really don't. I think that's not uncommon, yeah. uh, Pete. I think, uh, for uh, especially if the if it was difficult just being in high school and for a lot of kids that age, it really is difficult. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it can be a really painful time. And uh, even though um, uh, Barbara Streisand would say, what's too painful to remember, we choose to forget uh, that yeah. may well apply a lot to our adolescence. I think, you know? I think, that's very, I think that really informs how you were a teacher. I really felt that, I don't, I, I'm trying to use my best vocabulary with you, but I think, I feel like I felt that pathos with you, that you understood, one, you were talking to children that had probably already been wounded. I'm talking about psychologically wounded, that had shadows, that had ids and egos. We, we were already... You know, I remember reading something that the Catholic Church starts baptizing and giving communion at seven because that's when your wound happens usually and you start to forget. That's when you leave the garden. So you treated us like grown-ups, but you're right on the money. I wrote down in my little notes here, I was like, you were speaking directly to, whether or not you knew it, to the pain that I was going through that I didn't even know I was going through. If you had asked me, I would have been like, I'm a happy kid. High school is fun. But when I look back on my, like trying to do work therapy, whatever it is, it's all that time, which brings me, and this is, there's no format to this chat. I just want to talk to you. I'm just happy to see you. I, I knew I wanted to mention this one specific Mr. Brown memory. So for the listeners, Mr. Brown was taught, my English class, and he taught a course that we'll get to as well called Art of the Film that changed my life. And this was in high school, which is crazy. So we were studying Death of a Salesman. And I I think that was the first class I had with you. And there's a couple things I remember. And they're sort of related. One is I remember you saying, who here, we were, oh, I'm sorry, we were talking about, this is later, Hitchcock's, um, not Rear Window. uh, Is it called Rear Window? 
Rebecca. We did Rebecca in oh. class, and then you, you uh, for summer viewing, you had to do North by Northwest, I think. That's right. But also, is it rear window with, with the... Rear window, right. Rear window. And you said to the class, you said, who here hasn't, on a walk, caught themselves looking in the windows of their neighbors? And Mr. Brown... <laughs> we're both grown now. So you, I could say that at a, a dinner party, if ever a thing happens again, but like no one would think that was weird. Now it was the weirdest <laughs> admission you could have said to a bunch of 16, 17 year old people who are all tensed up and were like, no. And I don't even know if I spoke out, but I was like, Oh my God, that's what I'm talking about. When I'm saying you were addressing our shadows and well, my psyches. intention wasn't to imply anything kinky. Of course not. I think you I even actually, said that. I was thinking of when I still lived in New Jersey and longed to move to New York City. And I'd, I'd visit New York. I'd go down to the village and all these wonderful brownstones, these great houses. And of I course. would look in their windows. Of course. what really informed my saying that. You know, you'd be I think you'd you'd be crazy not to. When I lived in New York most recently, we had a view that looked like rear view, like the movie Rear Window. And I was just I would look at I wouldn't stare at it because you do start to feel a little bit weird. But it looked like TV sets. It looked like every like these little snippets. You just see someone cooking in their kitchen and they know you can see them because it's New York. Everybody knows you can be seen. But I was fascinated with honesty, with like the honest, what does a family really look like when they're sitting down to dinner? And not just a family, a different family. Like what's another family look like? So I remember you saying that, but the real one, and this was the first year, but I think you'll see how these maybe apply. We read Death of a Salesman, and this was the first class I had with you. And I remember you, we were talking about Willie Loman, and we were talking about like what, kind of a tragic character he is. And I said, he reminds me of my father. And I was just, it's true. Willie Loman, there is something about, my dad is like a very gregarious, larger than life, successful guy. So it's not a complete fit, but there's something out of touch. You you always pointed out that Willie Loman says, I wish I had more time to listen to the radio. And someone says, why don't you turn it on in the car? And he says, who thinks of turning the radio on in the car? That sort of reminded me of how my father could be in his own way, and, and all of us too, but I said that in the class. And dude, in Boston, and at that age, and the reverence boys are supposed to have for their father, I mean, the, the vitriol I felt, the, the judgment I felt, people looked at me and people were like, he reminds you of your father father i mean like i'm maybe i'm exaggerating my memory but it was a shame moment and i tightened up and i was so scared and embarrassed and ashamed that i had said that and there comes mr brown <laughs> like the scent of lavender <laughs> he just kind of wafts over this tense horrible situation you go he reminds me of my father too and there and we all thought you were the greatest so you completely diffused and alkalized the situation. And then we had an honest conversation about how our hardworking fathers can feel like Willie Loman. 
but that was when I was like, this, I'm going to say it, this motherfucker. <laughs> I was like, this guy's all right. But I mean, these are, these are huge moments in, in the mansion of my subconscious. That room exists because you took the time to say no to a bunch of kids that I think were kind of under the, the group hypnosis of, that I still see when I go home to Boston. I, I don't know. I, it's just where I'm from. Maybe I see it more. But it's like you don't say anything bad about your mother. You don't say anything bad about your father. You don't say anything bad about your city. You don't say anything bad about your teens. And like you were going like, it's okay. We can go in the scary door and talk about the ways our parents might let us down sometimes. And it was crazy. What? Please go. I've talked too long. Well, no. Uh, it's amazing how there are two sides to my computer monitor now. You're on one side and I'm on the other. And I'm, I'm so incredibly moved because on your side... As you recounted that, I'm just so thrilled at how willing you were to make yourself vulnerable back mm. then by saying that. Maybe, uh, certainly, you you didn't consciously choose to do so. You just went ahead and did it. But that capacity to make yourself vulnerable um probably probably informs who you are now pete uh in your ability to make yourself vulnerable in front of audiences to make yourself vulnerable uh in terms of uh choosing what you're going to include from your own life in your television show all of that mm-hmm. uh on my I, side i'm not just saying this mr brown sorry to interrupt but i do think i was following your example i I was like, there's a man, he's in Boston. Again, I don't mean to shit on Boston, but I was like, (laughs) there's a man, he's an authority figure. And you would say things like, I look in windows. And I just felt like the signals I was getting from the people that I knew was don't admit you look in windows. Don't say your dad uh, is a scary or confusing character to you. And then you started doing that. And then I was like, I'm going to try that too. So I think I was following your lead. I'm not just saying that. Well, that anecdote moves me so much on my side of this computer screen because I haven't thought of this in years and years and years and years. Yeah. But uh, when I was maybe a junior in college, I was home from college and death of a salesman was on television and So uh, in those days, there weren't multiple televisions uh, in multiple rooms, or certainly not in my family, which was essentially a a really working class family. Uh, But so we were all watching it in the living room, probably at my insistence, because I was a snot-nosed, pretentious little English major. (laughs) Uh, uh, But lo and behold, we're watching it, and oh, about a third of the way into it, my father got up and went to bed. Wow. And I knew, I knew, I knew that it was just too excruciating for him to watch. That yeah. was why. He, so when you said that in class, it's funny how, I, however many years it's been since we've seen each other or talked. But as you were doing that in class, 
that was also what was informing my response to you because um, I, that play always reminds me of my father. Yeah. I, I, I'm so, I'm not surprised, but that, that modeling, like you were doing a lot of modeling and, and this podcast, I, I'm so touched that you even know I had a TV show and do stand up and all those things. This podcast is brought to us by Mr. Brown. Like this is the, I'm not ashamed that I look in windows when I go on a walk podcast. And this podcast is maybe the most, it's the purest cut of what it is I'm trying to do. There's, there's not an angle. That's why I was going to say in the intro, I was like, we're just talking like it, it can go anywhere. It just is. It's just the pleasure of we're having coffee and you're at the table next to us and, and your, your date didn't show up. So you just listen to us. That's, that's what it is. But because of those moments and my father was such a, and, and in many ways is still like such a mythic character that I didn't even know there's little Mr. Brown putting on a movie. You know, I would wonder subconsciously if you knew your dad would be not, not incited by it, but like you're showing him that you can handle this like topic. I know that I have things like that, you know, with my father trying, I'm trying to like communicate to him sometimes through my work. I came out that I was like, I think I wrote, I wrote a book and I was like, I think a large part of it was trying to get my father's specific clear attention. I wanted him to see me in a way that I don't think is necessarily going to happen because I need to say, I don't think that's, that's in the cards. It's, it's me that's making it weird. <laughs> As they say, I keep going to the hardware store for milk, but like <laughs> I, and, and he's a great hardware store, but I keep going in for milk. Um, it was those moments where I was like, oh my God. And then, and then when we got into film to jump ahead a little bit, when we started watching Psycho, I mean, like, you want to talk about a movie that addresses our shadow and addresses, and, and children have these. In fact, they're being installed when we were your audience, when we were your students. Those, those things were being erected and you were helping me find language. To jump, sorry, to jump back to Death of a Salesman, you taught us about symbols. And I've, I've, taught, I've been taught Death of a Salesman in other classes and stuff, but you were the only one that were like, why won't he fix the stairs? The stairs is a symbol. Why the radio is a symbol. So when it came to like writing things or even enjoying TV shows, you know, I loved Mad Men, the hard candy in his desk. That's a symbol. You taught me how to look at things symbolically, which helps me interpret my dreams, which helps me write and understand and not be and not be ashamed of of the human experience. And psycho, if it's not about shame and you know, <laughs> I don't know what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> Was that intentional for you? I mean, are the, this is this up your alley, these things I'm saying? When, either in film or in the English class, did I ever sort of give you my definition of art? I don't remember it. Oh, you cut me to the quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me give it to you now. One of the nicest gifts I ever got from a class 
at the end of the year as they, uh, I think it was the last day of class. And this one group of kids gave me a picture of all of them that they had taken together. And they were all looking at the camera. And I don't know if you can see this. They were all looking at the camera like this, bug-eyed. Because I always used to say that art is what, uh, art demands that we look at it like this, with Uh, bug eyes, that degree of hyper-alertness. And in doing so, it also trains us to live our lives that way mm. so that we're go- there's that's why art is life and life is art and you're an artist so whether vocation gives you that capacity to do that or whether uh uh it's something that you learned along the way um that same ability to look simultaneously at a movie and see what editing uh, is doing, what camera is doing, what symbols are there. Uh, To be that alert watching a movie is the same way that you live your life. And if you live your life that way, you have that to bring to the film and and vice versa. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Uh, we always get into the mystic stuff at the end, but just to jump ahead, I quote it all the time. Jesus says you should wait for the kingdom like a like someone waiting for a burglar to enter their home. Have you heard that one? At which I is, think that's coming from your your fundamentalist path, <laughs> as compared to my sort of Anglo Catholic. Is that right? Idea. The incense is filling the air path. <laughs> well, it is a bizarre quote, but it's one of the reasons why I like it, is you're saying we watch art with our eyes bug open. So you're watching it, I would say, this is what the meaning is, like you're as intently as you're watching a door that you're waiting to open with a burglar. It's that, it's, it's that Mary Oliver poem where she talks about seeing bear tracks and she's like, there's all these poems about people seeing bear tracks, but they don't tell you that when you think you're going to die, all of a sudden you notice every scent, every bird, every leaf. And that's, I just that's, want to interpose. Uh, it, just throw something out and then we'll go on with what you're saying. I'm getting goosebumps that you're, you're quoting that uh, Mary Oliver poem. <laughs> you, in one fell swoop... <laughs> You you illustrate everything I hoped for you. <laughs> well, I've gotten what I need so I can relax now. I can just interview you. I can just get some of your story. Because this is sort of, I, that makes me so happy. But I have this life because you you modeled it for me. I know how to watch a movie because in Art of the Film, you would watch these movies that I know you've seen too many times. You've seen them too many times. You had to watch them for your other classes. And you would sit there like someone was giving testimony that was going to determine your life or death. Like you said, and I knew even at the time, oh, he's modeling. I didn't know the word, but he's modeling a behavior. He's showing us that that's how you're supposed to watch a movie. We're making jokes and looking for snacks. And you're showing that you can pay life and movies and poetry and all these different things, as a certain level of attention that will that will increase their payout to you and yours to it. 
so anyway, I'm I'm thrilled. I feel like I'm talking to an archetype in my subconscious. So I am trying to impress you, I'm sure. And now I really can calm down. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are all of these little flashes of other topics uh, to talk yeah. about here. Uh, archetypes, for example. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, uh, I mean, it, it's so curious that, how many years have, when did you graduate from high school? 97. So it's been 23 years. So we have not seen each other for 23 years. There have been, you, you've sent emails every once in a while. And uh, um, we've talked about doing this podcast. Yeah. Uh, the big obstacle being my utter computer illiteracy. Uh, <laughs> but um you know, there. It's amazing that we pick up beyond where we left off, but with the same sensibilities that we left off. With you know what I mean? I do. And doesn't that speak to archetypes? I I, I feel like I'm coming alive in a way that I felt in high school. Like that sort of it was healthy. We wanted to impress you, and I know other other of your students felt this way. Because you did, you do, and you did have such a command of English language, and you demonstrated it like like ballet moves or something. It was very, you didn't mind showing off, and you weren't ashamed, even that we keep coming back to shame, you weren't ashamed. And again, not to put down Boston, but I didn't know too many people that were that wanted to call other people rap scallions or or or, or tell stories about using the inappropriate tense of a verb or something like I was, so there you were not going beyond the level of teacher and into the level of like passion. Like it was something, do you have to get your phone? No, uh, it's undoubtedly a robo call intended to separate a senior citizen from his money. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we have a couple ways we can go. One is I'd love to hear anything you have to say about art and plays and writing and the things that, that really are the core of what you were teaching me then. Cause I think even though most of the people listening are, are grownups, there's a good chance when I got to college, I just taught everybody what Mr. Brown had taught me. Nobody got it. Nobody, nobody had heard the message. They all went to high school, but they missed it. So I'd love to talk about all that. Or we could we could lead up to that, and you could tell me a little bit about how you ended up at Lexington High School in 1997. Um, on the one hand, I'd probably prefer you provide the shape for for this conversation, sure, um, because you have a sense of um, this is your podcast, and you know what you want to give out to. Well, your then let's do audience. this. Um, I'll write down archetypes, and we'll and I'll say. Mr. Brown, you, in that childlike way, you were there because teachers had to be there. Now I'm grown. I'm like, what were you doing there? <laughs> How did you? Uh, did you ever think I was asking myself the same question? <laughs> <laughs> now I do. But literally, I, I used to not literally, but think you guys slept at the school. You and Tony Capeza and all the all the teachers lived at the school, but you would allude to this life that you had lived in the West village that you, so tell me a little bit about 
how you ended up a teacher. Okay. To, to some degree, your trajectory has been the same. Trajectory has been similar to mine. Um, I, I was teaching in New Jersey. I taught New Jersey for 13 years, uh, but I was living in, in the village during those years. And it's, again, vocation, being led, whatever. It's curious that all the years I lived in New York, um, I had occasion to be on the periphery of the lives of some very famous people. And, um, uh, I mean, even in a sense at, at Lexington, you know that some of the kids at Lexington have gone on to live uh, celebrity lives, you know, I did, I as know. you have. I didn't know that. I, who? Who? Uh, first of all, who in New York? I'm picturing you immediately with Andy Warhol. What's happening? Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> I used to go to Max's Kansas City, uh, and Andy Warhol and his crowd hung out there. Is but I a- wasn't with the Andy Warhol crowd. I was with, um, it's funny, I, I'm, ver- I'm very squeamish about recounting this only because I've spent my life trying not to be in a name dropper. So. I can feel that. And I was like, Mr. Brown isn't going to say anything unless I say like who you have to, this is it. This is the, this is the consummate Warren Brown interview. You have to talk about it. Well, I hope no lawsuits ensue <laughs> <laughs> For, against me. Not yeah. you. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, um, for example, <laughs> I'm trying to weigh this very carefully in my oh, head. You'll have a, a couple of weeks at least if you want to edit anything out. You wake up tomorrow morning and you go, take out the, uh, I'm assuming it's an O.J. Simpson story or something. I don't know what's about to happen. But, um, all right. It comes from a lot of different angles. Uh, my, this life that I had in the first years I was living in New York. Uh, this one, uh, this patootie I had at the time was friends with uh, a vice president of Bantam Books in charge of all of the um, paperback uh, publishing related to movies that were coming out based on these books. So through him, I had occasion to go to a lot of private screenings. So uh, I remember seeing Death in Venice, the movie Death in Venice, sitting next to Leonard Bernstein. And, wow. you know, and uh, <laughs> uh, another uh, another person... Uh, um, a little while ago, I'm trying to, I'm having a senior moment now. The woman with the peekaboo hair, not Tallulah Bankhead, <laughs> was the other one. Anyway, she was a drunk and she'd show up from California on their, uh, and sleep it off on their Park Avenue sofa, you know. <laughs> but a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine worked at Brooks Van Horn at the time. And uh, that was the big costume company for Broadway shows and everything. Okay. Okay. And 
he stole costumes for Bette Midler. So <laughs> Bette sort of gradually became part of our social circle. No way. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I saw her frequently uh, when she was uh, in Clams on a Half Shell uh, on Broadway. She left tickets uh, for me at the, the um, ticket window. Afterwards, we went backstage. We went back to her apartment. Uh, one of the most frightening things was being in the limo with her and having all of these people crushing around us. You've probably experienced that yourself at some point. Um, so, uh, any, and then that wow. same friend wound up being maitre d' at Reno Sweeney, which was a big nightclub at the time uh, in the village. It was on 11th Street, I think. And so, um, uh, that... Uh, Barry Manuel, all of those mm. people connected with Bet, they would perform there, uh, and through him, uh, we'd get invited to Broadway shows, uh, r- rather to to parties where the entire cast of a Broadway show would be. Wow. So, <laughs> I, this was the currency of my life for the first years. Uh, the first, I would say, five years that I lived in Manhattan. So you were in the mix. I was in the midst. And and did you want to be a teacher at that time, or was it? I already was a teacher at that. Time. I know, but in were the you midst like... of all of this, I was commuting every day to New Jersey. I was <laughs> wondering about that commute. I was. I literally was like, Pete, yeah. you got to think of a better follow up question than how long was your commute. But that's what I was thinking about. Um, but so. Like, you're talking about calling and stuff. You know the life of art, and you and you maintained a love. I of did, and except culture. except what happened was that through the end of a relationship, I became um, disillusioned. Now, maybe not disillusioned so much as I saw through it. I saw that it was just a way of life, like any other. Hmm. You know. I do. And um, my despair over the end of the relationship, th- that kind of grieving, grieving's always a complicated thing to begin with. And so that grieving was probably also grieving for letting go of that life. So what did I do? I went back to church. And and church was the, my salvation when I was a kid because my family was so dysfunctional. Mm. The, the only place I felt affirmed and safe, really, was uh, in the Episcopal, in the Episcopal Church. In the Mr. Local- Brown, that is so. I told you I wrote a book, and I had so you have to sort of outline your life and sort of turn it. You, you turn it into a story. I'm not saying it's not already a story, but you're going like, okay, why was I so into the church? And when I really sat with it and thought about it, I was like, it's where I felt not only really, really safe, but like appreciated and, and seen. Like it was like, it was safe in many levels. Not only was there no turmoil, 
but it was also safe to be myself. Was that oh, the same for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you learn so much. I mean, the, uh, to this day, however unorthodox I've become, um, I, uh, I still am so grateful to the Episcopal Church because I learned so much about art and music, um, uh, culture uh, from all of those years at church, yeah. especially growing up in a town that was only one square mile, three quarters of which was cemetery, and yeah. a high school that was uh, just deadly, deadly. Wow. Um, what town was this? It was, <laughs> now I'm going to get a lost. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a, a little town called North Arlington in New Jersey. Uh-huh. And it was a real working class town. Most of it was cemetery. The school system was just deadly. Uh, the only inspiration I ever got was from uh, a Spanish teacher, not because she was brilliant at teaching Spanish, but because she wore this incredible jewelry and had this dark, dark, black, black dyed hair. And she <laughs> would come back from school vacations uh, with tans. And she was the one who taught me that there was a bigger life. Out Isn't there. that funny? Only because of who she was, not because of anything she did in class. You know, this is, this is what I was trying to impress on you, but it sounds like you already know the teachers at the front of the class, it's what they're teaching them. And it's also what they're modeling. So I said, you modeled how to watch a movie. You modeled a certain freedom in how you spoke and a certain unembarrassedness that I was like, what is this? I, I don't know if you know, but Steve Martin in his book says the teachers are uh, maybe, I don't know if he says the purest, I'm going to add the purest form of show business. It's like you are putting uh, on a show. I, I always said to uh, my colleagues, never in front of you, the students, I always said, we're doing five nightclub acts a day. Yeah. And- it's uh, it's very we true. Were. We were. But it's just like going to see a nightclub act. Talk about Bette Midler. Yeah, she's a great singer, but like you're also just absorbing an energy and absorbing Absolutely. The, the allure of a lifestyle. Absolutely. Nobody better Absolutely. than Bette Midler. Are you like, I bet her limo's crowded. Turns out we know that it was very, very crowded. Um, so, so where it started in church. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how starved you were for it. It sounds like, you weren't getting it at home. You weren't getting it at school. It's crazy to hear where you came from. I'd love to know a little bit about what it was like growing up before. Well, I was a choir boy. I was an acolyte, you know, uh, and even in the context of church, there was some were some incredibly uh, amazing, eccentric people. We had mm. one priest, uh, his wife, um, she... Uh, she had graduated from um, Radcliffe, I think, and she took up piano shortly after graduating and in three years was a concert pianist who would commute between uh, New Jersey and PBS in Cambridge because she had her own show up here. Three um, years of playing? Uh, yeah, it's oh three years God. and she was a concert. She also, uh, as a kid... Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, the movie, or the play um, 
the World of Henry Orion. Have you ever heard? It's about two girls in a private school who follow Oscar Levant, the pianist, around. And it, the book was written, and then um, uh, it was turned into a musical on Broadway. Uh, well, she was one of the two girls that that was all based on. Oh, my gosh. And, and her husband was, you know, very sort of posh New England. Last name was Appleton. He was the priest at the church. He met her when he was in the monastery that I wound up in later on. He knocked her up, had to leave the monastery, (laughs) and he uh, eventually went mad, left the church, and jumped off the George Washington Bridge. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, these expansive lives, these extraordinary stories, um, you grow up in the midst of that, and it it inevitably gives you some vision of what the what life is. If you're know? paying attention, we're back to Mr. Brown's wide open gaze at reality, right? Because isn't that the feeling? I mean, like we all here. I am so in love with you as a teacher. I wonder if the other students, you know what I'm saying? Like everybody's having their own. Exactly. To some people, I'm sure exactly. you were just. Old Mr. Brown, like that oh. guy, <laughs> or and and or, you, or that bastard who is such a hard grader, yes, or, yes, uh, uh, or teaches these books. Who cares about these books? Let me uh, see if I can get the cliff notes. Yes. Oh my God! Don't make that mistake, Mr. Brown. Will find out somehow. <laughs> I so you you found it in the church. This culture. Not only was it following you, but like it was in you. You were looking for right. the interesting people. So, so after the the Bette Midler era phase, whatever, uh, I uh, started attending um, the little church around the corner, an Episcopal church, Church of the Transfiguration is its official name. It's also the Actors Church. And I became really involved there. I was uh, I, I, I was the thurfer. I swung the incense. I um, <laughs> was subdeacon. I was master of ceremonies. I was a tour guide. I did all that. I was really active there. Uh, and even there, um, I couldn't escape the celebrities like uh, Rex Harrison came there. Sam Waterson came there. Mm. So uh, eventually... But, and this was after, I'm sorry to interrupt, this is after you sort of were like, you had renounced show business. Right. And I, here I, it was yeah, still it was sort of following, following me. Even now, here I am <laughs> sitting across from you. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, realizing that show business... I don't want to I don't want to put down show business that I would say that any lifestyle is hollow in the same way or is false in the same way. Right. Right. And, but of course we worship it in in our society in western culture. So that revelation again for me it's sort of what's it's sort of what's been happening in my later years. Here I am in show business. I enjoy it. Um but I have to keep an awareness that it's just a game and that it's just a dance, and that it's just a play, just in the same way that anything else is a dance, a game, and a play, because it's so dangerous to believe your own hype. So similar to Little Mr. Brown, 
I was like, if I don't start feeding, for lack of a better word, my soul, I'm just going to, I mean, name your cliche. I'm going to just, I'm going to believe my own press. I'm going to buy my own hype. I'm going to start doing cocaine or whatever it is. And I'm going to flare up in the sky, uh, like however many others. So you had that same sort of inkling of, was it a spiritual thing or was it just a social thing? Can you hear all of the uh, uh, huzzas that I'm sending you, uh, <laughs> that I'm quadrupling in your distri- direction? I, you, you're charming me, even after 30, however many years. You're just charming me, Pete. Um, but this is the real stuff. I see this in your Facebook posts. This is another reason I wanted to talk. You post about mysticism. You post about life. And I what I was inferring as a student, I'm now seeing as a grown person and like realizing that we can't believe the newspapers of our egos and we have to go deeper. Was that what you're, what you were after when you were at this Episcopal church? Definitely. And that's, uh, you articulated it really well because uh, after about three or four years at uh, Transfiguration, I decided to go into an Episcopal monastery, uh, and that's what brought me to Cambridge. And I was there. For, <laughs> I was there for five months. The first week, I w- I wanted to be a monk. The second week, I wanted to want to be a monk. <laughs> and I say I stayed for five years because all of my friends and family back in in New York and New Jersey thought that I was absolutely crazy. Uh, So spite. You stayed for spite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I mean, my even the the monks there, they used to call me Brother Buck. Um, If why? uh, Well, if there were a male version, uh, you know, this the, the song in Sound of Music. How do you solve a problem like Maria, where yeah. all the nuns are singing about? Uh, well, I guess I was sort of the same way. I had my mustache, and uh, which they would call the sacrament in reserve after <laughs> communion because the, the wine would get up there. And uh, I should I, I should say for those who can't see you, we used to call you shredded wheat because your your mustache oh, looks like shredded wheat. That to, shred, yes. I never knew I knew yes. the walrus, but I never yes. shredded I never got into calling you the walrus. I we always called my friends would refer to you as shredded wheat because you have this amazing mustache that looks like not frosted mini wheats. I'm talking about the original you can only have two in your bowl. Uh. Uh, and you got to let them soak for a while before you even try. That's sort of what your mustache looked like in high school. And you still have it. So they were they called it the sacrament in reserve because you had a little purple, a little blood of Christ right, exactly. in your stash. Uh, so uh, anyway, I uh, metaphorically jumped the wall on the Monday of Holy Week. Uh, I I knew that there was no way. Uh, well, for one thing, I also discovered... And this is a phrase that I used earlier that uh, also applies to your experience. Um, When you know that something is just a way of life like any other. Mm. And uh, at uh, at the monastery, uh, it was right in Harvard Square, just off Harvard Square. And 
uh, every, I think it was Tuesday nights, they would have a bean feed uh, after the Tuesday evening mass where uh, a number of people would come uh, for dinner. And a number of Harvard students came. And I remember one time um, sitting at a table with two other monks whom I really admired and two Harvard students. And they were, the two monks were were playing these Harvard students for a fairly well. Uh, they were telling them things about monastic life that were, act, were absolutely not true. And the gullibility of these two Harvard, there was a, a sort of cruelty to it, you know? And uh, and it went completely over the head of the, the Harvard students. But I sat, sat there and thought, gee, they're really being kind of sadistic, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those moments when I realized that, uh, and I'm not, I'm not uh, denigrating monastic life for those who have a vocation for it and find it um, really... Uh, worthwhile, but I knew that I had to jump the wall. Oh, seeing this is a huge. I see. I think we share this passion. Seeing no matter what the outfit and no matter what the accolades, that it's just a person who shits, who burps, who's afraid on bumpy airplanes. It 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 sounds like I'm putting them down. It's really humanizing and unifying, it, like. Bill Burr, one of my favorite comedians from Boston, actually, has a joke where he went to church and he was watching the pastor or the priest, rather. And the priest was saying all the things you shouldn't do. And it was like, he goes, it's just some guy. It's just some guy. (laughs) He goes, he likes soccer. And that was his example. I go, when you say the priest likes soccer, that's what we're talking about. It's like, all of the colors exist in these people. It's all in them. And maybe you'll enjoy this. You brought this to mind is that Thomas Merton went to a monastery, a, a contemplative monastery, and he basically roasted them. It's a sort of famous story. He said, most of you aren't contemplatives, contemplatives being people who walk around looking at things with the wide open gaze and just let God and love pour into them. He says, most of you aren't contemplatives. You're just introverts. No one likes you. Like, 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 he's like, you didn't have anything else to do. It's sort of how I feel about a lot of teachers. I'm like, you're not a teacher. You just didn't have any other idea of what to do. And the last adult that had you was a teacher. So you're so uncreative. You couldn't even think outside of your own experience. And you went, well, that guy did that to me. I could do that to other people. That's so many teachers. And of course it's monks, but th- this, this wall disassembling fills me with life. I don't want to believe that anybody has the one thing that makes them on the special path and I'm on just some humdrum path. Th- it, there's, there's what, what you're saying is so pregnant because it points, I mean, vocation is a lot on my mind and your description of those teachers uh, points to the tragedy of people who are who either haven't found their vocation or uh, who are living a life that isn't their vocation to live, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and what happens when uh, vocation 
isn't necessarily uh, equated with what one does for a living, what one does to earn money. Uh, I sort of learned that when I lived in New York, I attended a lecture uh, by Robertson Davies, one of my favorite authors, Canadian author, and he was a big Jungian. And uh, uh, so after the lecture, I immediately went out and bought all of his books and read them. And one of them was called Fifth Business. And Fifth Business, it's actually a theatrical term, but Fifth Business uh, refers to uh, someone whose life isn't intended to be, they're not intended to be the hero or the heroine. They're the sidekick or they're the, uh, the, the person uh, who does something that has a big impact on the hero or heroine, like Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet. I was going to say the apothecary in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and reading that book and, and seeing Fifth Business as an archetype, I sort of realized it taught me a lot about archetypes, but it also taught me a lot about myself because I realized that, you know, I, I, my intent, it would seem that the intention of my life is to be on the periphery of other people's lives mm-hmm. like yours. And that's fine. Um, uh, not everybody is intended to be a lover, even though uh, everybody's mother says, there's somebody out there for mm. you. Mm. Uh, everybody has somebody. Donkey dust. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, n- not everybody does have someone. If if your uh, if your vocation is not to be a lover, then uh, yeah, it's to be something else, and it's all sacred. I mean, I was thinking that as you were. describing before uh, all of these different people, um, even the ones who are teachers who shouldn't be, that it's all holy and it's also also all a joke. So those priests, you know, those priests, they're – they're holy, but it's also a joke. <laughs> yeah, they also they like soccer. He also says he has a dick. That, that's the other line, which I, I just growing up with such reverence. I love that you understood. Of course, you do and heard what I'm saying. Talk a little bit about that. There's a lot of young people listening that could use a Mr. Brown that we don't. I, I love what you said about the, the fifth, the fifth profession, the fifth. Fifth business. Fifth business, excuse me. But could you talk a little bit about vocation, about finding, I think a lot of people, whether we have jobs or not, we may, we may still be looking for what it is we're supposed to be doing. Is that what a vocation is? It's not just a job. It's Yeah. What comes to mind, and I'm going to be very English teachery here please, uh, for a minute, but uh, I, I think a vocation a lot in terms of, for example, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Did you ever read Sir Gawain and the? And I you did know, not with you, but it was in LHS. Yeah, and and Sir Gawain had he he makes this deal with the Green Knight, and he has to set out to uh, to fulfill the deal uh, and go to the Green Knight's castle, and he can't 
he goes to the middle of the forest, but he doesn't find the castle until the castle emerges from the mist. Mm. Mm. And uh, and this is what the the quest is like for for a lot of us. Um, the same as in Once and Future King, which is the Arthurian legend, where um, uh, Sir Pellinore and the Question Beast they go back and forth, back and forth. The, the, I was thinking about this uh, regarding your reference to mysticism, too. For example, mm-hmm. that. We can, we can't say I'm going to be a mystic. <laughs> yeah, we we set out on a quest, and it either comes to us. It, it has to meet us halfway. You know, if we push it, we can. If we push anything, we can get into big trouble. That's very good. I like that. I you're reminding me there was a teacher. It's in the book Deep and Simple which was Mr. Rogers's favorite book, which is why I read it. And there's a thing where they say, if everything is grace, if everything is given to us, if the castle just emerges, and, and the student was saying to the teacher who called it an accident, the castle, in, to use your uh, metaphor, the castle emerges by accident. He's like, so why do we meditate? Why do we study? Why do we chant? And the teacher says, to be as accident prone as possible. Perfect. Isn't that good? That's it. Uh, That's it. The the light bulb is going on right over your head. (laughs) (laughs) So if we're listening to the Arthurian legends or Sir Green Knight, I'm going to say Green Knight. um, The only thing we can do is go in the woods. Exactly. Going in the woods is just going inside. And what is it in the woods? It's dark. It's scary. And it's quiet. <laughs> and we can be, we can sit in the dark and get scared and be quiet. And it I think, be, and it can be very moist. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that, isn't that how we become accident prone? I mean, this is Skywalker going into the cave. This is Joseph Campbell. I knew he was going to come up. Joseph Campbell, by the way, says the reason cathedrals are so beautiful and ornate is because it's supposed to bring you into a place that you can then remember to carry with you into the streets of Manhattan. So you go into this tranquil place, and then it comes with you. It follows you onto the sidewalk. So here he is again coming up to mind. I'm like, it's our job if we're looking for vocation, if we're looking for meaning. These revelations like, I don't need to be in Bette Midler's limo, or maybe I'll try a monastic life probably came from inner work is that would you say whether you were doing it consciously uh, probably a combination of inner work and simply who i was intended to be mm. that was there all along you know um i mean uh i uh, on the one hand i got in real trouble at one point uh regarding mysticism sort of trying to push it uh when I shouldn't have. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. I mean, even if you look at uh, some of these, uh, like Alastair Crowley and uh, some of these um, uh, wizard types, uh, they always warn against 
you know, uh, going farther than you should go. And I sort of went farther uh, than I should have gone at one point. I, I couldn't and, be more interested. You're going to have to tell that story in slow motion. Uh, step that one out. What do you mean? Well, um, ugh. I want. I do open want to my, say that, that I opened my big mouth and now I can't even fit <laughs> my big foot in it. Um, uh, very simply, I'll, I'll just give the shape of it. Um, a friend of mine was reading those Seth books. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Uh, Is Seth a disembodied being? Yeah, and so she um, she put me onto them and. I took them much too seriously, and I started doing automatic writing. I know what that is. Yeah. Where you, well, what do you do? You count out loud while you write with your other hand? Well, I was writing messages to myself uh, on my, between my thumb and my index finger. And, uh, but you, you, you know... With- they were coming from your subconscious, is that well, supposedly, except if there are forces out there that are very dark and very dangerous, then things like that can come from those forces as well. And so, um, I uh, yeah, yeah, let's just say, I, I Mr. Brown, I needed, we're gonna talk about this for an hour. We're gonna uh, unpack oh, every no, element no, no. of this. Uh, let's just say I needed a little time with a psychopharmacologist before I came wow. right Well, this uh, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I certainly don't want you to get into details that you don't want to, but my spiritual journey had a lot to do with taking psychedelics when I was, I think I was 30, um, 30 years old. And I didn't even take what I would consider a big dose, but like, uh, so do you know who Ram Dass is? Yes. Richard Alpert, as good East Coast people, we should know him as both. Um, he often said about psychedelics, which is similar to, it sounds like similar to potentially dabbling in the occult, is that a lot of us are reading chapter 30 when we never read chapters one and two. Right, right. So you're like jumping into the, so he would say right. that that's a risk with psychedelics, like people take it, the doors of perception are blown open and you get just way too much. That's a great analogy, Pete. That's a great analogy. So I'm just saying you're not alone in in having a zeal to want to know what's going on here and an earnest desire. And, and what gets us into situations like that, I think, is a, a combination of innocence, ignorance because at any given moment none of us is ever working with a full deck and so (laughs) we're entering an area where we're too stupid to go um uh, also uh hubris too you know uh Mm. that sort of pride uh that thinks that uh we either deserve or are capable you know uh so um uh, so that, in a nutshell, with that digression, that's what I meant by uh, okay. it being dangerous. It's you know? very my dinner with Andre right now. You realize that, right? Except you're Andre, and I and I get to ask the follow up questions. When I watch the movie, they never listen when I ask follow up questions. <laughs> I so can it suffice it to say that you were doing exercises that uh, the book purported would would open up other realms or whatever. Right. At the very least, they were getting you out of your conscious brain. 
and you were writing things and you freaked yourself out. Right. Is it because of the accuracy of these things? Was it something like that where you thought kind of like a, 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 a psychic break where you were like, oh no, I can see the future or I control the world or is it troubling to talk about this by the way? Cause we don't have to. I, I haven't thought about it in so long. It's not so much troubling as uh, I don't know if I'm, if I know enough to be able to answer all of your questions. I think there were, I, I don't know for, for some reason lately, the tower of Babel has become a major metaphor f- uh, for mm. me. It seems to apply in so many different circumstances. And I think there was an element of the t- tower of Babel in it. I was reaching higher than I should have Icarus and, and Daedalus I was flying too high. I was reaching higher than I should have. And I had to be smacked down a bit, you know, a little slide. Uh, I just, every time I, th- I think of Icarus and Daedalus, I remember a student teacher who in class started t- telling the kids about Icarus and Dicarus. Um <laughs> I've, I tried to discourage her from pursuing a, a teaching <laughs> career in English. Anyway, oh that was goodness. That was for free. That's um, amazing. I, that's actually a serendipity. Is is the other name you said? Is that Icarus's father? Uh, Icarus and and Daedalus. Yeah, is that the other guy that was flying with it? Yeah, Earth? yeah. It, it's the funny. father and the son, and. Uh, the sun flies too high and yeah. uh, the wax in his wings melt. Uh, yes. He gets too close. And uh, the sun, of course, is Apollo. So he's smashed. That was back. you. That was you. Well, that Icarus is mentioned. I just watched Hamilton last night. I loved it. It was incredible. And they mentioned Icarus. And I actually consciously had the thought, you know, Icarus's dad was also there. He never gets any uh, name check. And then there you are saying his name. The next day, you, you are now saying his name. I find that to be uh, synchronicity. Synchronicity yes. is the word. Yeah, I love those little synchronicities. Were those piling up in your Seth book times? Was the world becoming too much? No, I, I remember describing it to a friend who uh, very kindly uh, said I sounded like Lady Julian of Norwich, mm. uh, you know, uh, trying to impose uh, a, a saintly context for what, in fact, was madness. On my wow. I actually, yes, I know Lady Julian of Norwich. She said, I believe she was holding a, 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 a nut of some sort, maybe a chestnut, and she said, this is the entire universe. And if you unpack that, there's some poetry and there's something really true as above, so below, as in this chestnut, yeah. as in everything. But the next door neighbor to that, all of those beautiful true things and mystically true things is insanity. Is somebody is, is if you don't know what you're saying and you just start saying this chestnut is the world, that is not only an impression of an insane person, that's a bad impression. It's a cliche impression of an insane person. Well, my feminist friends out there will congratulate me on what I'm about to say. But have you ever noticed that all of those saints who, uh, like uh, Joan of Arc and Lady Julian and Hildegard, um, uh, they were all perceived as crazy 
uh, by their neighbors, yes. uh, but the guys weren't. Yeah. You know, the, the male saints, they St. John of the Cross, St. Francis of Assisi. Well, he uh, he did make some people did question his sanity at the time. But, uh, but that wasn't <laughs> no, so much right. in terms of his vision. It was in terms of his giving up so much money. No, it, of course. And that's a quick way to make people think you're crazy. But, you know, I was a reenactor in Salem. So when we talked about powerful. You were, oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, if now I feel better about revealing all of my secrets. <laughs> I, ne- I never knew you were a, a, a reenactor in Salem. Well, it's funny. I remember one of the things speaking. I still get a certain feeling in my throat when I talk about the occult. I think it's because I was raised in the church and it's just I, I'm easily uh, spooked, I guess is a way to put it. And when I was a reenactor, oh, you should be. That's good to be spooked. I think you think so. Yeah, have have a little uh, stay out of the deep end. Uh, I don't want to interrupt your anecdote. No, uh, but this is is part of it. If you were a Salem reenactor, who whom were you reenacting? Were Bridget, you uh, was, were you a good guy or a bad guy? We were bad guys. We were bad guys. We were oh. the Puritans. And we three times a day we we set sent Bridget Bishop to be hanged, um, who was the first uh, woman to be accused, and of course she was a landowning single. So just like you were saying about vocation, she didn't fit the mold. She yeah. didn't marry. She was self sufficient, so she wasn't indebted to a man, and she, you know, the. Uh, at the time, we were so interested in whether or not she was actually breaking the law. We think she was because it was against the law to practice witchcraft. So that's why we felt okay with uh, having fervor for our side. <laughs> because historically, she did break the law because, believe it or not, it was against the law to make a contract with the devil. And there was, of course, you could say, like, how do you prove that? Uh, so please, don't think I'm insane. I know that she, she didn't do anything. But she did have like poppets and stuff, um, like little uh, voodoo dolls, I guess we would call them. But anyway, one of the first weeks or months that I was working there, I was walking up the cobblestone path and I remember making a joke to somebody on the street. I was asking everybody if they were a witch. I was like, are you a witch? Are you a witch? Are you a witch? And I happened to ask, I, I promise you guilelessly, I asked this man if he was a witch. Turns out he was a Wiccan and he didn't like that. So he told my manager... Yeah that he doesn't want in his own town for some snappy, doughy-faced reenactor in knee <laughs> socks from MVP Sports shouting, are you a witch? And by the way, 100% in the right. Like, he was 100%. That is inappropriate. Um, but if I didn't spend the rest of that month so scared that uh, something was going to happen to me... Of course, Wicca is so much more than what we know it to be. But at that time, I just had a, a thought where I was like, well, I've offended a, a warlock. He's going to curse me. Of course, that's that's pedestrian and, and juvenile. But that goes back. That's how far back. It's very it. sweet, though. I hope as you look back <laughs> on your past, you have great sweet. sympathy for, for yes. yourself at that time. I, it's cute. It is cute. And I spent the whole summer looking over my shoulder for some 
some apparition or familiar that, to come and get me. Speaking of which, Mr. Brown, I cannot wait to ask you about this. I have waited 23 years to ask Uh-oh. you about this. So you oh, can I feel not... my words are coming back to haunt me. Here they are. Do you hear the heartbeat under the floorboards? It's here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to work in as many literary references as I can. You, um, over the years, it was never all at once. Of course, I was a spiritually fascinated person, as I, as I still am. You would tell the story of having a haunted apartment in New York City. And I I remember the stories, but I'd rather just tell you that and have you go. And if you forget something, uh, maybe I'll nudge you in that direction. But do you feel comfortable talking about that? Oh, absolutely. It's funny because, you know, as I'm walking down the street, I'm not necessarily thinking that I'm someone who believes in ghosts. Yeah. But those stories, I really do. Uh, that, that, apartment, <laughs> that apartment definitely was haunted. Wow. Um, Where was it? It was in the village? It was in the village. It was on 10th Street between 5th and 6th. Beautiful block. One of the most beautiful blocks in the city. And I had uh, an apartment in one of the brownstones there. And let's Wow. See. Sorry. Um, I'm just going to take a moment. I know that street. And that is incredible. To think we both could have, uh, we could have bought it probably for, I don't know, what do you think? I, it couldn't be that much, and now it's probably worth the three. Oh yeah, I mean, when I, I had the apartment there, this was in the seventies, so I think my monthly rent was about three hundred and fifty bucks. <laughs> now, wow. living there has a mortgage for three million. Yeah, but, well, um, and and unwanted roommates that we're about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, I, th- it was definitely a a. a female ghost um and at the time (laughs) i i used to play the guitar sometimes uh and sing when i was there by myself i had no pretensions about becoming the next james taylor but uh when uh, when i would do that it was interesting the entire apartment would fill up with this sweet aroma and I never knew where it was coming from Uh, and so at that point I figured well she must be pretty benign Um, but then it was around Christmas time and I had invited this friend a former Spanish teacher at the school I taught in in New Jersey Uh, we were going to go out for, uh, for dinner and she came to the apartment for drinks uh, first, for a glass of wine before we went out. And so we were sitting across from each other. I remember uh, this. So, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want you to know that I know this story. You know what's coming. And I know what's coming. And I, oh, it's not scary, by the way, if anybody's freaking out. Well, I don't, it was scary to us, though. Right. I just want to say it, it, you don't, your eyes don't start crying. Oh, blood. Okay. It's not, it's you're not warning, so- you're warning anyone who tunes into your podcast. <laughs> that, that, they don't have to start clutching their nether regions. Here. Uh, that was a weird instinct. I don't know why I wanted to make everybody feel better, but please keep going. Keep going. Uh, all right. So we're sitting across from each other, engaging in conversation, just talking. And I, I'm looking at her and all of a sudden, her face changed. It wasn't her face. Mm. 
it was like another face was superimposed on her face. Uh, and I was scared shitless. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say anything, you know. Mr. Brown, I'm sorry. This story is scary. I, I thought it was vaguer than that. I thought it was that she sort of shifted or morphed. You're saying it was a superimposed other face. It, yeah, it was. A, it wow. was. It was just not perfect. And I remember being so frightened that I could feel tears coming in the corners of my eyes. You know, my wow. eyes were water. And so she's talking. Her name was Betsy. Um, and so Betsy is talking away, and I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, she stopped and she said, "Oh my God, Warren, that's not your face." Whoa. And these, these, I had ropes of greens up on the fireplace, and we were sitting sort of opposite the fireplace. And as soon as she said that, the ropes of greens fell off the fireplace, and a big puff of smoke came out of the fireplace. Oh my God. An unlit fireplace? Unlit. Oh my yeah, god! Because the, the 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 fireplace typical of a lot of uh, New York apartments, it didn't work anyway. So well, when I picture this story, you guys are in front of a roaring fire. I don't know. That's just how I uh, set designed it. <laughs> <laughs> that and, is why. Well, keep going, please. And then um, again, uh, very hostile occasion directed probably more towards a woman than me. And that's what makes me think that whoever was haunting the place was a woman. Um, I was going to Europe for the summer and um, a friend of mine, a woman asked if she could sublet my apartment uh, while I was uh, in Europe. And so that, that was fine. So um, she needed the apartment a couple of days before I was leaving for Europe. So um, I stayed at a friend's so that she could move in. Well, a day into this, she called panicked. Uh, she called me at this friend's apartment. And she said, can you please come over here right away? And she wouldn't tell me why over the phone. So I scooted over there. And um, she uh, took me into the bathroom and there was what, for all intents and purposes, seemed to be blood dripping from the bathroom ceiling. And the, 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 the apartment had very high ceilings in that way that brownstones in New York. So... Um, uh, and collecting you know, on the floor? Like there was a little... Yeah, floor. yeah. And so um, I went upstairs to the apartment over mine. Um, a, a children's book author lived there, but she was away. I knew that she had gone away. So there was no one living in that apartment. So there was no reason for anything to be dripping down. Mm. And here was this blood <laughs> dripping down. So... Um, mm. I I think that it uh, um, my friend was trying to. There was an eviction notice for my friend. She yes. She, uh, Did she so, leave? Uh, no, she didn't. But it was just very curious. Wow. We so never knew 
where that that blood was coming from. But the same sort of perfume. You, the guitar story. You, you told it. I remember saying it was like a perfume. So right. this ghost sort of liked you, and then didn't like this new woman. <laughs> I mean, these are the stories we tell. Yeah. But I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. They, um, the, there was competition. Uh, women were not uh, not allowed in my apartment, or they were not welcomed in my apartment. Wow. That is fascinating. That so I don't know why this took me back here, but what kind of hijinks were you getting into when you were at the monastery? You were there for so long, and they called you the buck. I, I'm going back because we're in the realm of the spiritual. So you clearly had this like appreciation. And this is after your sort of break. I don't want to call it a break, but yet breakdowns. People call them breakdowns. <laughs> you had something like that, and then. Uh, now you're in a monastery and they're calling you the buck and, and you end up leaving. What was your flavor of monk that, that caused all this trouble? Um, what kind of monking was I doing? Yeah, what kind um, of monking? <laughs> monkey business. Well, no, um, I mean, I was trying very hard and uh, that probably should have clued me in sooner than it did. But it was funny because as soon as I got to the monastery, I couldn't pray anymore. And there was this built-in meditation time. And I would lie on the floor of the chapel and go to sleep because no prayers would come, you know. And then I i don't know. I was, you know me. I mean, I can be cheeky and silly uh, <laughs> I, uh, and irreverent. And um, I think that unconsciously, I already knew that I didn't want to be there. And so meals would be silent other than that bean feed on Tuesday night. Meals would be silent. And some and one of the monks would read to us as we ate. And I I just rebelled against it. So a co- uh, two or three of the monks there I was close to, I was friends with, and so if they looked over, I would play showies. That's not, that's not something dirty. It's um, <laughs> when you open your mouth and reveal all of the chewed food. <laughs> so uh, the adjective I'd like to apply to this is that I was irrepressible. Yes. Um, uh, and, I love it. Uh, and so um, I and my first vows were coming up. I was a postulant. My first, uh, also, it didn't help that uh, with my cassock, I was always wearing Sperry topsiders. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't that didn't add to my monkish. Uh, <laughs> no rule against aura, it. You know. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, uh, eventually, uh, I just knew that I couldn't take those first vows. I Your couldn't. behavior knew before you did. Right. Uh, I, uh, you're so articulate. <laughs> you're so articulate. Well, I think it's really interesting. We just went through an experience where Val and I were looking at a house just for fun. And we were like, are we going to buy this house? And we weren't in a position to buy this house. 
And I remember being like, yes. But when I think back to that, my body, like if I had just taken a moment to check in with my body, which I didn't, this was a while ago, I would have felt the no. Yeah. This is like that. And again, I don't want to give Boston a hard time, but like, I feel like so much of what I grew up with is disembodied. I'll give you an example. A a friend of mine's, uh, well, I won't tell that story just in case he listens to this because we both went to the same high school. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to tell you, Mr. Brown, but can edit it out. I call a friend of mine that I went to high school with. His father has cancer, Mr. Brown. And this man was like another father to me, as all the fathers are of your close friends in high school. Yeah. So me being a West Coast weirdo and in touch with my body and in touch with my heart, I called the man. He's dying. It's a no-brainer. I called him and just was like, I just want you to know how much it meant to me, how you always asked me questions and you talked to me in a way that my father never talked to me and how I appreciated that and I love you. And, and, and I never even mentioned the cancer. I just told him that I loved him. And it wasn't even overly sappy. It was just kind of like, yeah. just wanted to tell you, this is what I'm saying about Boston. Because I know we're editing this out, I'll speak frankly. I call it botism. It's a certain type of autism that like, there's just a tone deafness. My friend, instead, I, I wasn't expecting to ever hear from my friend about it. I didn't think the dad would tell my friend, but apparently he did. And the way that my friend responded to me was he made fun of me. He said, what are you having a midlife crisis? What's going on? Like, and I was like, this is what I'm talking about, Mr. Brown. I went to school with a lot of people with no body intelligence, no heart intelligence, no soul intelligence. And, and people like you and me, we have these poetic leanings. We want to tell people that we love them. We want to reach out and 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 share some truth and some vulnerability yeah. and yeah and it's we're in our forties now and, and I'm yeah. still getting teased for it that that's yeah. why it's so valuable that I had you as 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 someone who could model it's okay to talk about pain or sickness well, or sadness well maybe it was a good thing that I was bringing New Jersey and New York into the classroom yeah uh, in Lexington. Uh, with me, you know, um, uh, I always, I've always felt like an outsider anyway. So uh, I felt as much an outsider uh, teaching in Lexington as I had when I was a kid. But, but what you say, your perception of New England is interesting because I remember when I first moved up here uh, and had just jumped the wall of the monastery and was trying to find <laughs> a teaching job. Um, and m- my perception of New Englanders was very similar to yours. Mm. You know, it was very difficult to make friends. Uh, people were very sort of closed in. And, and it was as if any kind of liberal compassionate feeling was directed entirely into politics because Mm. people couldn't be that way in the course of their daily lives. Yes. I think that's absolutely true. I think we have to leave this in. This is too good. I'll just say to to that (laughs) friend, if they hear this, I understand. It it just hurt my feelings that, you know, when you make someone a cake and you think you're going to get a praise, if if anything, you're going to get like, thank you for being so nice and you sort of get teased. I don't think he knew that would hurt my feelings. 
but it, it just remind it gave me that sort of whiplash of remembering yes. what it was like to be yeah. in a place because because you're absolutely right. When I got to New York in uh, 2004, I, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, there's a reason this is the place of Broadway and it's the place where stand-up yeah. thrives and it's the place where, you know, I don't want to say intellectualism, but, like, people who love literature and people who love theater and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, I, you just sort of absorb it by osmosis. So, of course that was a part of what you were showing me. You were my Bette Midler. I just realized <laughs> you were my Bette Midler. And I, and I was like, I think, <laughs> I think this person's living a different way. And that meant so much to me. Um, but uh, I'm trying to tie that back in to, to what we, what you taught me. I do remember there was a time in class where you were talking about conformity I don't know if you remember this, but I did have long hair. My hair was as long as it is now, but I wore like a punk leather jacket with spikes on it. This was a brief, well, it was like a year long phase I went through. And I really prided myself on being a non-conformist. Of course, you were kind to spare me the apt observation that I was non-conforming in a conformist sort of way. Like these weren't my ideas. (laughs) I would well, just... but, but that's so characteristic of, of adolescence anyway. Yeah. Right. We're ordering off the menu and I ordered right. the nonconformist. <laughs> but Mr. Brown, if, I hope you feel good. You should feel good. And I hope this also makes you feel good. At that time in high school, everyone wore a white baseball cap with a college on it. It was just the thing. So much so that me and my friends called them the White Hats. It's like a John Hughes movie. It's like there were the the non-jocks and then there were the White Hats. So it was beyond jocks. It wasn't just athletes. It was the good-looking kid. Yeah, there you go. That doesn't count. Mr. Brown just put on a white Red Sox hat. That doesn't count. <laughs> the ones that I'm talking about would say things like that say like uh, Princeton or, or, or I remember ones that would say Cox. I don't know why they would say that. But anyway, in class, you stood up there and, and you were talking about conformity and you said, how many people in this class right now are wearing a baseball hat? And then you said, and how many of them are white? And I was like, this motherfucker's calling them out. Like, I, it was... <laughs> You and I, I don't even think as grown people, we can get in touch with the level of stakes and how everything matters. Every, and, and the fact that you were shining a light on the fact that like they were a group, they were a clan, they were like a, a tribe is the right word. Yeah. And you were saying, do you guys even know that you're in a tribe? Do you even know that you're towing a line? And man, I thought that was badass. <laughs> <laughs> And they all went home and stuck pins in their Mr. Brown doll. Yeah, maybe. But I remembered it the rest of my life. Here's some, I, I'd love to know any uh, memories that you have. I remember you teaching us A&P. Do you remember that, John? Upton? I do. I love that short story. It's incredible. And, for the, and you taught us, I very vividly remember, it's about, I, I, I want people to go out and read it, obviously, but it's a story about a kid. This is going to really bastardize it. Who works at the A and P, and these young girls come in in their bathing suits, and the manager asks them to leave because they're wearing their bathing suits, and the kid quits. And Mr. Brown, 
the practical, my brain just didn't know what to make of this story. I, I was looking at it through my ration, my, my rationality. If, if we want to segue into mysticism, I was looking at it pragmatically. I was like, why would you quit? That's foolish. He needs a job. He needs to live. And you, it was such a mic drop moment. You were like, he's a romantic. It's a gesture. There's something so, and the way that Updike writes about the women, there there's these symbols of fertility and vitality and life and exuberance and sexuality and pulse. And he works at the fucking A and P in an apron in neon lights. And of course he quits because the quitting is God itself. <laughs> it's life itself undulating and fucking itself and reproducing and everything's erotic and exotic and alive. And of course he quits. And now that I'm thinking on it, I'm like, this is when I learned what my homeboy Richard Rohr calls third way thinking. It's not, was it right or wrong? Did it make sense? Was it reasonable? It was an act from his body and his heart and his soul. It was, it was a, it was a, what he'd call transrational. It's not irrational. It's not rational. It's beyond the concepts of rationality or irrationality. And, and might I add, it's enough to break your heart. It's enough to break your heart. That's it. And because that is the feeling of being an adolescent. If you can yeah. imagine, that's what I'm trying to say. A teacher calling out the white hats in the room is similar to a, a kid. The stakes are actually pretty low in that story. It's a summer job. He doesn't have a mortgage. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that big of a deal. But it's the feeling of when life was being viewed with that art face that you teach. Everything is big and everything matters. And how dare you be a long, cold, gray line manager shunning life itself. And and it'll... you taught us that. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And also um, how we better be careful if we try to make assumptions about a kid working in an A&P. Mm. Because there's a great spirit working in a context where we want to just cage them in. That's know? right. Yeah, he's a cashier. That's like an insult. Oh, she, he's yeah. a cashier. Why are we listening to the cashier and the story from the perspective of a cashier will, will, will decimate you. It's incredible. You also go, oh, go ahead. Do you have anything else on a and oh, well, I'm just thinking as you were uh, uh, describing all of that uh, again, how lucky I was to be an English teacher. <laughs> I you love know? that. I, I'm trying how to be lucky. lucky. Uh, yeah. I mean, you had you have to write your own material. I had the best writing my <laughs> material for. <laughs> yeah, I know, but they fill. I, I let me put it to you because I, I I'm catching myself talking too much because I'm excited. But the story A and P, death of a salesman, East of Eden, don't look now, psycho, blow up. These are all things that you gave me. They're not just things I watched. It's like the food that I ate. They fill, Garrison Keillor has this line where he learns the word fuck. And he's like, it certainly filled a gap in my vocabulary. So all of these fill gaps in your psychic vocabulary. The rest of my life, when I felt a 
a swelling of unearned, seemingly unearned emotions, I was like, oh, this is like A&P. I'm feeling more than is on the surface. So you were, I was obviously lucky to have you as a teacher, but and you were doing something noble. When minds are that young, and by the way, I know so many teachers now and what a schlep it is and how thankless it can be. So that's why I wanted to talk to you and, and in a way talk to them. We're talking to these brains that are still not yet just on the biological level fully formed, and you're giving us these colors to paint with. I go, how many times have I been like, so you had us watch Don't Look Now when I was 17, which is pretty ballsy considering it opens with the death of a child and has a very, which you taught us the difference between intimacy and sexuality. It's a very intimate sex scene. Remember the intercutting and the peeing in front of his wife and all these things. So I now have not only all of that as a frame of reference for intimacy, I also know what it's like to be chased by a red hooded little girl through the streets of uh, Venice, because that's what motherfucking life feels like. So much of life chases you like a little girl in a red thing on the streets of Venice, no matter how much you try and put it away. This is young Ian. You talk about that. Talk about learning how to think, learning how to process through art and through literature. I've said my piece. (laughs) What, what's heartening in what you're saying, Pete, is that um, again, timing is so much in our lives. And the timing for me in terms of my teaching years was perfect. Uh, Lexington, when I was there, was a great place to teach for a variety of reasons. Uh, it was a very um, liberal community in its own way. Uh, I didn't know that you were coming from a fundamentalist Christian background. I probably would have freaked if I did, uh, <laughs> because so much of what I included in the curriculum, I don't think I could ever get away with if I were teaching now. You know, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, uh, the show is blow now, up. There's a three way oh, blow, blow up. up and <laughs> don't look now. I mean, the stuff that I included in the classroom, I think that um, if I, if I, we're there now trying to teach that stuff. There'd be hordes of people with torches and pitchforks circling around the school, screaming De Burgermeister, De Burgermeister, yeah, yeah. you know. And pictures of Donald Sutherland's penis with a big cross through it. <laughs> but I, didn't we have to sign something? I think I had to have my parents. No. no? It was only, uh, there was talk of making students sign something uh, the last year that I was there, because I taught blow up, and for the first time, one parent complained. Uh. Uh, I think that before that, I was I was able to get away with a lot in the classroom, admittedly. And I think that uh, um, the reason I was was because of kids like you. Um, I know that a lot of kids resented me because they thought I was a hard grader, but um, they respected me. And I think they thought the classes were interesting. Mm -hmm. And so kids didn't go running to report me. 
mostly because they, if they had, they'd be afraid that they would alienate the kids like you. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you protected me. Isn't that interesting? So, would you talk a little bit about the phenomenon that I think you've enjoyed? That when you consume a good piece of art, now your neuroses and your shadow has a vocabulary to talk to you? You already beautifully described it because everything (laughs) that you were talking about, how A and P or uh, what you you, uh, did in class years ago, uh, still um, becomes a, a kind of tipping off point. Uh, to help you further understand what's going on in your life right now. Well, if that's true for you, it's still true for me. I mean, look at how earlier in our conversation, I used Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Once and Future King uh, as analogies trying to explain to you my own experience. So that's the, and, and people who don't read or people who don't value literature, uh, they, they don't realize how much they're missing. That That's a really concrete example of how impoverished a life is when it's not enriched by these sorts of things. Yeah. Just as you know that in your comedy, you're doing a lot more than just being funny. Well, that's, that's interesting because I do think I learned that. I, I've said this before, but I'd love to hear your response to it is that a comedian, again, doesn't this sound like exactly what I said about you? It's not that, just what I'm saying. If I'm being vulnerable while I am a tall, loud, uh, shouting man on a stage under lights, but I'm talking about something vulnerable, that the medium is the message. That's the message. It doesn't really matter that I'm talking about losing an erection or something. I'm making it, as Mr. Rogers would say, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And I've tried to use stand-up as a way to be like, I'm scared too. I'm, we're floating in infinity and I'm confused too. And instead of, and I don't mind being a little shit here or, or being a little bitchy, uh, if I had a criticism of stand-up, a lot of times it is used to just to just uh, you know blow trumpets for the status quo. And as I always say, it's like isn't eating great, isn't sleeping great, isn't sex great, isn't winning great. Those are always my examples. And when I go to a club, eighty percent of the stand-up is usually just like, isn't it? That, that's very American, by the way. American senses of humor is very like, but I got the last laugh, like but uh, they didn't consider this and I outsmarted them and they're the idiot. That's like our sense of humor. Uh, so I've had some good examples of, of my comedy heroes that are like, I'm the idiot. Brian Regan comes to mind. I'm the idiot. He opens his special by being like, I was talking to this woman recently. I could have sworn she was pregnant. That's his opening line. And it's such a great unifying bit to be like, we've all felt like, the kid, I had a dream recently, Mr. Brown, where I peed my pants and I, I, I really had to hand it to my subconscious that it is so rich and so succinct that it could fill me with shame and panic and paranoia with one thing. It would just go, you peed your pants. And I was like, got it. I understand. <laughs> Last night I had a dream where I was facing something horrible and I had 
uh, a part in my hair in the middle that was perfect. It was surgically perfect. And I woke up and I knew that my subconscious was saying, Pete, you do all of this work to try and accept reality as perfect and to love reality. And as Richard Rohr says, to forgive reality. He says the first forgiveness is to reality itself. It's so horrible, but we forgive it and we accept reality almost as God. We say, this is real. This is what's happening. And I accept it. And my subconscious in one image, okay, so my hair was perfect and I was facing uh, somebody that had actually hurt somebody very close to me. And I woke up and went, right. My subconscious is asking me, how are we, it and me, making sense of the horrible tragedies and the so-called perfection that we claim to believe in? And it did it with one image. And I, and that's what great film is doing. And that's what great poems uh, are doing. Right? Wonderful. <laughs> I'm just thrilling here. <laughs> But I just knew you would like that because that's what oh, you taught me how to look. It also sums up uh, in one fell swoop. I'm, that's another image I seem to be using a lot lately. Things seem to be happening in fell swoops a lot. And, uh, in one fell swoop, you summed up and really united literature and film uh, and the power of a single image. You know, uh, and your dream did it, but movies do it, too. And uh, I, I don't know. I became something of a missionary when I taught film because uh, I, I set out. I was sort of given the course because the woman who taught it um, had retired. And oh, really? The, I didn't know that. Had, at the time said uh, he thought that. Um, I was the only one who could take it over, and I had only had one film class as an undergraduate, so I did some real fancy dancing the first <laughs> uh, the first semester of teaching it. But um, I, I realized how um, kids are plopped in front of screens when they're small, maybe not during this pandemic, but everybody out there thinks they're a film critic and they don't even know how to read a film mm. or don't really um, think very much about the power of an image, wherever that image comes from. You just described an image that comes from a dream and it's just so perfect because... It communicates so much, you know. Right away, you get it right exactly. away. Exactly. Well, I was, I was just. I think you'll appreciate. I, did you watch Mad Men by any chance? The show Mad Men. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. Please uh, don't. I <laughs> did. I. I. I watched the first season of your show. Oh, thank you. Uh, out of uh, a feeling of of sort of. I, I need to honor you. I appreciate uh, but, that. <laughs> but otherwise, I don't know. In my in my dotage, I'm finding that um, all the things that when I was younger, I used to feel I was supposed to watch, but didn't really want to. Mm. Now I want to. So uh, so I watch a lot of PBS and stuff like that. Yeah. I I think that's I would want nothing less. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. There was a symbol in Crashing that my character in the first episode is wearing a big puffy coat, and that was very Mr. Brown. 
is that I was like, he's insulating himself. He can't handle the world. So there, that's, that was coming in from my art of the film. But Mad well, Men, well, oh, go ahead. But I might add, though, that that first season, the one thing that occurred to me, English teacher that I am, was that your experiences were very picaresque. You were sort of like the Mall Flanters of HBO. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Mall Flanders, the, the first picaresque novel, but... Oh, no, I thought you said Maud Flanders. Who's Maud Flanders? Ma- oh, the first picaresque novel, uh, Maud Flanders. The, the uh, picaresque novels, the genre uh, that in which... There's no sort of premeditated plot. Every day she sets out to, and says, oh, life, here I am. Uh, and she's, she needs money. She needs food, whatever oh, she needs, you know. But she's, uh, she is immediately presented by uh, the challenge, the nature of the world as it is. And mm. uh, she uh, has... Uh, there's a lot of haphazard things that happen, and uh, you know, I and- would say you understand our show very well. <laughs> it's, it's like a ba- it's a basic needs. Gee whiz! I can't believe reality is like this. Right? I mean, you know, your your first marriage ended. You were bereft. You set out into the world, and all of these things and. And the Feast of Humanity, all of these characters. Yes. And, you know. It, it We're all, back. We're back to the Green Knight. Go ahead. Sorry. So if I, in the future, if I refer to you as Maul, <laughs> you <laughs> know where I'm coming from. <laughs> but isn't that it? I, you know, it was a little challenging for me to have another show where a guy finds out his wife is having an affair. But I was like, why is that a trope? I hope it wasn't a cliche. I hope it was a trope that um, we did in a new way. But um, it's because we need a death. There needs to be a death. Yeah. And there needs to be a reason to go into the dark woods. In our in our show, it was Manhattan. In The Green Knight, it's the woods. In Arthur, it's the woods. And Manhattan is the concrete jungle. And, and, and Artie is the, uh, Artie Lang, is the Obi-Wan kind of character. It's the Morpheus character. It's the inducting character it's the same story it's over it's it's john the baptist it's over and over the same story and you were conscious of that in the writing of it i was i i didn't i never set out to do it um as such i i feel like if you read that stuff you don't have to consciously think about it it's going to come it's going to come through and archetypes are archetypes so you know uh we we sort of, uh, the, which comes first, the archetype or us, you know, it's yeah. sort of like the bear shitting in the woods and all of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think the more I create, the less I'm afraid of archetypes and, and, the, and, and tropes, the more I want to like, the reason my brain had me pee my pants is my brain has no other audience other than me. So it's not worried about the critic saying how on the nose that he, like my subconscious just is like, let's, first of all, we could spend a good time breaking down. Why is there a part of my brain trying to communicate with another part of my brain? 
these and other unasked and uncontemplated questions of reality, that there's two me's. I don't smoke a lot of pot, but when I do, I'm fascinated that there's a part of my brain saying things like, boy, I was hungrier than I thought I was. Who are you talking to? Who, who is the I that thought it was hungry and then it surprised? It's like, I don't understand. And then I recently had the epiphany where I was like, your brain gives suggestions, commands, and direct orders. Diarrhea is a direct order. Uh, but sometimes it's like, a chip would be nice. But like, it's insane. the way the, And I'm telling you, and you're not even weirded out by it, that my subconscious has been seeing the things that I've been reading and doing in my conscious life. And it was like, we need to engage with the, the main headquarters. Let's cook up a dream. Um, I think he'll know what a, a, a part in his hair means because of a painting someone explained to me of a surgery where the doctor has a very precise part in his hair. And he was like, we'll take that and then we'll put in the image and he'll understand. Why does it want to be understood. Why is it a human need for truth, for clarity, for lightness, for airiness, for breeziness, for flow, as above, so below? Nature likes waterfalls. Nature likes filling a vacuum. And the fundamentals of my thought processes, which modern people are are taught to believe are separate from the natural world, it's our faculty to analyze the natural world, it turns out are subject to the same laws that that a black hole is. It's fucking incredible. And people walk around... I don't mind if you don't believe in God because you really did some thinking about it, but you just don't believe it because who cares? The world is so boring. If you, if you can be enraptured and say, don't be a child, there's no God. I love you and I have more in common with you than most people who believe in God. I, I promise you that. But, but don't, it's like Mary Oliver, don't forget that you are a part of the thing the whole thing, it saw the whole thing as itself. That's, that's, that's waking up. I don't know why I just went on a little sermon there, but it happens sometimes. Um, that, uh, what you just said, and now I wish I could remember the uh, quotation exactly, because um, <laughs> you, uh, you, when we were getting ready to do this, and you mentioned some topics that might come up, and mysticism was one of them. Uh, oh, a couple hours ago when I was on Facebook, I reposted a, I one saw- of those contemplative monk things about how uh, mysticism is just seeing belonging, that how much you belong to everything and mm. everything. So you were just being a mystic. You know? <laughs> uh, and in addition to that, when you were talking about these conversations that you have with yourself, um, it occurred to me that you're also getting ready for your own geezerhood when you talk a lot to yourself yes. and around in slippers that are too big for you. I can't wait. I remember when I graduated, you said you were going to go sit in the woods with a shotgun. I know you did that for a while, I, I believe. You, you moved out of the woods, but did you go to the woods? Oh, early? I did. I retired in 2004 built a log cabin in the Adirondacks. No, you built uh, it. 
Uh, yeah, well, I had a, a contractor. And no, but you designed it to yeah. Thoreau's specifications. Yeah, I worked with an architect to, uh, uh, to design it and and built it. I mean, come on, you, uh, my little English teacher hands. I'm not going to be up on the roof <laughs> chasing condors off my chimney. Um, <laughs> but. Um, uh, and I lived there for five years. Uh, uh, the cabin was at the top of a mountain, a pretty treacherous drive up and back. Um, and um, I had some nice neighbors, very kind neighbors down the road. Uh, but I discovered that my, the people I was closest to uh, in the Boston area, they each came up maybe once and then were not interested in coming up again. And I had built the place as sort of a retreat house for the people in my life whom I loved. To you be know. shared, yeah. So after five years, I realized that I, as nice as some of my neighbors were, uh, like a lot of rural areas in this country, the politics were oppressive mm. um uh and also that i hadn't really established any relationships that could equal the ones i had with people i had the longest history with mm. so i i sold the cabin and moved back to massachusetts you know but i did live i lived in the woods in a log cabin for five years wow that, that's very joseph campbell that's you know it's it's timely Val that's my wife and I are always talking about ways to to get out of the city because nature does speak to us and all that but but a friend of mine he said uh maybe bluntly I don't want to put down our friends that live in uh, rural areas but he was saying usually small places have small uh beliefs sometimes and that has always scared me so I'm sorry that happened I I wish it had worked out um but is this working out? You're back in uh, a city? Oh, well, I'm in Carlisle. Oh, you're in Carlisle? Yes. New York? No, Carlisle, uh, Massachusetts. Oh, I'm sorry. Just oh. up from Lexington and Concord, you know. Yeah. Um, when I first moved back, I moved to Lowell. And um, I had a loft there that was supposed to aesthetically uh, uh, console me for having given up the... the cabin with you know the beam ceilings and all of that <laughs> uh, but I discovered that Lowell was not the place for me I also substituted in at Lowell High School and uh, you'll like this story because uh, my substituting there came abruptly to an end uh, you, you know how substitutes are, are yeah by the kids and by then cell phones had come in and I was subbing in these classes and I was supposed to uh, disallow the kids from using cell phones, which was an impossibility. They'd sit there and they'd have the cell phone on their laps, you know? So I would, in one class, I think they were seniors. And I said, please put the cell phones away. It looks like you're fingering your nether regions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the next day I was called in by the assistant principal and told that I had breached 
Uh, oh my word. It's of good taste. Uh, and of course, if I had said something like that in the classroom back, you know, when you and I were both in Lexington, the yes. kids would have laughed and we would have just moved on. But so in one fell swoop, I realized that, oh, and the assistant principal, she couldn't even get the, the quotation right. She said, she claimed I said, Netherlands, not Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. So, Brown, it's it's one of those feelings where I feel like a therapist would be like, do you feel lonely? Because like it's like that that level of being misunderstood. I, you know, I realize we're we're nearing the end. You've been so gracious with your time. Thank you. I don't want to take too much more of it. I didn't really give you enough air to answer. What do you remember of our time together? Whether it's our class or or me and you specifically, because I've told you a lot of my memories. But did anything come to mind? It would be such a treasure before we uh, did this, because I I really didn't know what to expect, especially in light of the fact that I didn't even know what the hell a podcast was. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I was thinking about that and I was remembering how much I loved your class. (laughs) I loved that class. There was just a, you know, some classes, they're just so special, you know? Mm. And um, I, I didn't even remember what I taught in that class so much as how much I really loved being with you kids, mm. uh, that there was just a warmth that um, characterized everything we did. And you had told me that I rearranged the seating because well, um, that was a different class. Art of the film, I believe, was in um, maybe D building. I took a class with you in A in the A house or right. whatever we called it. So that was this darker room. That was that's where we did Death of a Salesman. And I remembered that the class was so unruly. Um, I think we it, it was an arc. Uh, we were really great. And then we realized that you were sort of our friend or whatever. There was a bond. And then we took advantage of that bond. And we started really. Well, that, re- that was the class that I loved so much. And also I knew that. And I realized that it was as much. I had to acknowledge that those unruly stretches were as much even more because of me. <laughs> you know, uh, you knew how much I liked you. Yeah. Uh, you let me be cheeky and I let you be cheeky. And inevitably, the rhythm of that sort of thing results in the, the kids sort of <laughs> becoming a little too cheeky. You yes. Know? Yes. <laughs> so that was as much, if it, probably more, a result of me. Uh, than it was of you. But it was just that I liked you all so much. Right. Didn't we have, didn't that class meet right after lunch? I think so. And I would come into the classroom and you would have uh, drawn that circle with the big mustache. Yes, I would draw you on the board. (laughs) And also you were the first (laughs) that um, if I cracked a joke, you would hold up. A oh, that's right. 
numerical rating. So rate <laughs> my jokes. Oh my God, my nightmare, my professional nightmare. Well, uh, I must admit, before doing this, I I had a bit of trepidation because I wondered how much my my words going to be, were coming back to haunt me. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I, I only only love just so much. I mean, I think I've made it clear, but like what I learned there, I, you know, I'm writing stuff now. That's what I'm doing a lot during the quarantine. And I just think it's hilarious. And you should know that, and you do know, because I've told you many times, but here I am telling you again, that like, you'd think it might come in college, but usually like for me, college and high school, there's usually just one. There's like, it, you're lucky if you get one. <laughs> like, that's, that's sort of how I look at school. It's, it's not to say the others weren't great, that there weren't other good ones. They weren't great, but th- that there weren't other good ones. And maybe they were good in ways that I couldn't appreciate. But or, if you could, or great for other kids in the class. Precisely. But you're lucky. I'm telling you, when I say things that I learned in Art of the Film, to film producers, they don't always know what I'm talking about. When I talk about the movies that we saw, to film producers, they don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. When I talk about writing, even the way that you taught us how to write essays, which I went on to teach my floor in college because nobody knew how to write an essay, which was very simple. You really broke it down for us. That bleeds into my stand-up, the clarity of communication that you have to say, this is what I'd like to talk about. I'm going to make this point and I'm going to make this point and then you defend them. That's that's a good model for stand-up. So it's these crazy... I'm writing these scripts right now and the, the the images and the way that I'm trying to think visually all comes from that time in my my schooling uh, with you specifically that schooling and then and then one teacher in college who I think I'm gonna have on as well and do these as a series of these two teachers that really shaped my life but uh, sorry did you have something uh, well ju- ju- as much as I don't like name dropping I won't have you I won't have you edit out my allusion to that but uh but <laughs> it, it still makes me queasy likewise I don't like to congratulate myself but uh in affirmation of what you just said uh other students from the film classes who went on to film school yeah, uh, when they came back, they mentioned that uh, there were no classes in film school that prepared them the way art of the film did. I uh, so yes, I'm glad. See what my guess is that teachers, a lot of the time, even if they're having fun and and finding special classes, might be wondering, is any of this getting through? It's not like you said, five night club acts a day. It, teachers are not paid what they should be paid. They're not given respect uh, in ways that I think they should. And that's why I was like, what? It's a, it's a tragedy. I was like, we got to make sure Mr. Brown knows and, and, and people know to tell the teachers that they, that changed their lives. So I just wanted to set that example. Here I am modeling a behavior for the listeners. Cause well, I don't, I, I don't want you to be in lull in your retirement going like, yeah, I grinded out a, a paycheck. It's like you fucking shaped yeah, my no, psyche. I, I never felt. I never. <laughs> felt that I never. You know, there were good days and bad days, and I. I admit that 
every day when I went home from school, I took at least an hour and a half to two hour nap because I had to do have a, a boundary between oh, Mr. Wow. Brown and Warren. Mm. Uh, so I'm not saying that teaching doesn't have its costs, but everything has its costs. You, you know that from your own vocation. You, you know that, uh, what you do artistically costs you, marriage costs you, mm-hmm. you know, everything has a cost. So uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful that, uh, that well, the, I'm grateful that that was my vocation and I'm grateful that you affirmed <laughs> <laughs> my belief that it was as compared to maybe anybody out there who, thinks back and says, oh, that fucking bastard. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You know, it's funny, the quarantine really is showing me the cost of even, my job is a dream job. And when you don't get to do your dream job, you realize where you were carrying the stress. The thought of getting on an airplane kind of makes me want to vomit, to be honest. I've flown so many times in my life, sort of like old Willie Loman. I don't feel like Willie Loman, but that grind yeah. And, and that, that brings us back to Val and I being like, is there a way to spend some of our time in the country? Because otherwise, what are we, what are we doing this all for if we can't enjoy it with, a, with like your fantasy, the dinner parties with your friends and, and, and some quiet and some solitude and all that. Well, that shared itch is telling you that you have to do it and you will do it. You know, no. you're, all of those new age people talk about how visual visualization causes something to come true. And right now you're in your visualizing uh, phase, but uh, you'll, you'll definitely do it. Oh, thank you, Mr. Brown. That's wonderful. This, I mean, it means so much because you still are Mr. Brown to me. You'll never be Warren. (laughs) Um, I'm not even Warren to myself. I want to give this, usually here at the end, we just talk about the meaning of life and God. If there's anything else from our talk that you'd like to just say to people, because you are such a, you know, you've given me so much value. Any closing thoughts? And also the question, what do you make of God now? Um, However you'd like to take that. Hmm. Well, there are two, two components to what you just said. Um, one component is just what transpired between you and me. And what occurs to me is how all of us are always living in medius rest. We're always in the middle of things. And I just think it's lovely that we haven't seen each other in 30 some odd years. Mm. And yet here we are not only picking up where we left off, but that everything about this entire visit has been in medius rest with a long context before, a long context afterwards. And uh, we may not even see each other again, but that context (laughs) is uh, still there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's nice being in medius rest with you and in terms of what I think of God, it's nice being in Medius Rest with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yes. The the this, the frequency of connection. Exactly. 
and what you were probably missing maybe in your cabin some of some of that flow some of that very accent. definitely i if i i mean i had my dog miranda who died midway into my years at the cabin and then i got wigliff who died may 9th uh so i mean i certainly learned to value the companionship of both of those dogs which really opened up everything i mean it's uh, uh, that's another way of expressing what i think of god you know mm-hmm. um but uh if i had had someone human to share it with i might have stayed longer but the fact that you have your wife to share it with you know you might um you might wind up sort of being old and and sputtering around the kitchen and missing some teeth <laughs> and, <laughs> you know yeah you're um, right it it might be the loss of those dogs must have had a lot to do with that yeah uh, people that listen to this podcast know I'm probably going to say this, but like one of my favorite books by Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan uh, friar that I love very dearly, one of my great teachers, his dedication to his book, which is called The Universal Christ, um, is to his dog. And he says, um, I forget his dog's name, but he dedicates it to his dog who was in no exaggeration of terms, the embodiment of Christ to me oh, is, is what he said. So absolutely, that nowness of a dog, that unconditional love of a dog, that, that like the thisness of a dog, yeah. what I'm saying about how the human brain separates and labels and objectifies reality, the, the flow that you can enter into holding onto the hand of a dog, like crossing the river sticks, you can get a good guide dog, a guide dog into, into the eternal and into the cosmic. Oh, I, it's, it's the beginning of, uh, it's a door opening up to that belonging, mm. That, mm. that infinite belonging, mm. you know, I mean, I'm still grieving Wigliffe terribly, mm. uh, and and it's a sadness that I'll probably live with for the rest of my life. But <laughs> oh boy, they're going to make fun. Of, I'm never going to live what I'm about to tell you down. <laughs> <laughs> um, every morning I do multiple laps around the building that I live in, and on one side of the building, uh, uh, it's divided between sort of. Uh, uh, for the landscapers, so they know not to go past this boundary. There are these uh, bird houses, you know, uh-huh. and every morning now, a bird alights on one of those bird houses. And each time I pass by, I either wave or bow or uh tip my white baseball hat. Um, and I'm convinced, maybe I'm as crazy as Julian of Norwich, but I'm convinced that that bird and I have made friends. Of course. Uh, and that's how the universe expands. You know, it starts with dogs, maybe, or a bird or whatever. But it's like those 
those uh, Chinese puzzles where there's a box within a box within a box. Mm, mm. Yes, of course. And now we're really St. Francis right now. I mean, that's it. And we're St. Julia, Julian of Norwich. The bird is the universe. Yeah. yeah. It, it's weird to draw a boundary between the consciousness and a bird and your consciousness. It's an ego trip. So, of course, the finding the meaning. I, I, I wave or smile or wink or nod at butterflies and all that sort of stuff because just like I was kind of ranting about thinking my dreams are separate from the black holes. It's, it's a, it's a narcissistic ego trip to think that the butterfly is out there and I'm over here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where do you think you are? Yeah. Even when you go, that's a figment of my imagination. If we imagine a symbol of God or a symbol of ultimate reality, Oh, that's just my imagination. Whose imagination is the question? Exactly. What imagination? He thinks he's friends with the bird. Who thinks what, who, what part of you is even conscious to judge that? And that is the ground. That's the pearl of great price. That is what we need to watch our door. Like a burglar is going to come in and it is not housed by any religion or any book or any ritual or any weird occult exercise and that's why we started this conversation by saying, isn't it fun to think that our priests are just some guy that likes soccer because it's as close as the air on your skin and it's available right here in this conversation. And that's what I'm about. I, obviously, as a kid, you know, when I was in your class, I was uh, a fundamentalist, meaning I believed in a literal interpretation of the Bible and thought 99% of my school was going to hell, including you, I'm sure, who I love very greatly. <laughs> Talk about cognitive dissonance. I'm like, okay, I, I think he's going to hell, but what a great guy. I mean, I had to live with that. Who knows what I was dreaming about then? I remember whenever you brought up the Bible, you used to say, you little picadillos should know the Bible. You need to know. And I never even heard of this. You said for cultural literacy. Right. It was like, it's just a part of it. If you listen, who was I listening to? It was, it was maybe Bob Dylan or something. But like when you say the writings on the wall or, or, or you say, I, I, I don't want to show off all the things that we say that are from the Bible. I'm just saying there's so much in there that is, infused our society even going back to the 10 commandments being the backbone of our legal system it's just like you i used to really like it and this isn't as profound or as fun as what we were just talking about but i used to love it for what it's worth as a little fundamentalist weirdo that whenever you brought up the bible you had a reverence and you had like a respect oh absolutely absolutely yeah so well and it's it's wonderful to see how uh, engaged you are in your own literacy. Um, <laughs> I mean, from Mary Oliver to ghost stories to... Oh, my God. You, know, um, uh, you, you, you do an English teacher proud, buckaroo. Thank you, Mr. Brown. I, that was my hope. I wanted I, people to be I, able to listen to I couldn't ask for... Uh, for more from any of my students than what you um, and I, I, I know this is sounding so much like a mutual admiration society, <laughs> that, uh, 
there's something kind of disgusting about it. I, I believe it's sort you're of right. like in those celebrity interviews on Entertainment Tonight, where yes. everybody has such a wonderful time working with everybody. Yeah. Oh, uh, we're like a family, you know? Yes, yes. I watched Adam Sandler interview Brad Pitt, and it was sort of like that. They just enjoyed each other very much. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the, I think that the mutual admiration society here is genuine, and that's that's kind of nice. Well, if there's a recording of love, isn't that good? Isn't that another bird to wave to? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? People are listening in their car, they're on the treadmill and they're and they're remembering forget the love that we're sharing. You help me and have helped me remember that we live in a world. So what I was a world that's that's worthy of our awe. So talking about Mary Oliver, I like to start my day, I didn't do it today, but I like to start my day by reading one Mary Oliver poem, usually Mary Oliver. And I noticed, and it took me 41 years to figure this out. It's, it's the same with reading a novel. The, the medium is part of the message, the way that a poem is put on a page. I used to be like, why are they, the first line of a poem could be like, I went out to find, and then the next line is, away. why'd they stop at find? It's to disrupt you. Your brain wants to go, bada, 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 bada. and the poem is going, slow down, dipshit. You are now under my control and the way that you're supposed to look at a flower or the woods or have a loving conversation with your old professor is what a poem is inviting you into. That's waiting for a burglar. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the now that your dog was living in. Wouldn't you say? And that's the gift that you, that you opened me up to. Well, I buttered your bread enough, but I want you to be very clear <laughs> at least the rest of the day. That these gifts matter. Well, now, now we've gotten on poetry. <laughs> That's <laughs> a new topic opening up yeah. uh, in a way. But of course, it's all one, just like the sound of one hand clapping. It's yeah. all one. Yeah. And it's all art and it's all life. And you can't say, but do I sound like I'm writing a concluding paragraph? <laughs> it does. Now, <laughs> summarize the apples, both apples. <laughs> But isn't that funny? I mean, even in my improv, I think some of that, I you are writing a concluding paragraph. We are wrapping this up, and that is something that I learned from writing. Well, you said a bit ago that uh, you could see we were heading towards the conclusion. So Yeah, no, I, I, we're, we've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes, so I think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Can we, can, let's do something very practical here at the end. Okay. For people that want to enrich their lives as we've been talking about how these things aren't just ways to pass the time. They're ways to fill our inner reality with color. Give me Mr. Brown's movies, films, and maybe even a few poets. Just give us a few recommendations so people can take this love that you have and bring it a little bit into their lives. Well, this response is probably cheeky, but I, I always... Um, what if you said Avengers Endgame? I always find making recommendations, uh, I'm almost tentative about it uh, for a couple of reasons, partially because um, 
what speaks to one person at a particular time doesn't to others. Uh, and also because oh, after a lifetime of doing this, there's so much, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, yeah. like the short story A and P, I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it um, earlier. Yeah. And as soon as you mentioned it, I just remember how much I love that short story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so to, uh, one way to sort of um, reply to your question uh, in abbreviation is that on my Facebook page, <laughs> I made a list of of movies and I made a list of favorite books. <laughs> so there you go. If I were a real bitch, I could say, just go to my Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> we can. Warren Brown, look for the shredded wheat mustache, and that's the guy. No, that's totally fine. I, I love that answer because we've sort of hit on it because it's and not not to just put words in your in your mouth here, but it's like it's how we're watching and how we're consuming. If we're doing it deliberately, you can even get value out of Avengers Endgame, I believe. <laughs> um yeah, I mean I like once in Future King, uh, I love that book. And and Fifth Business, I love, you know, both of us, you and I both have been alluding to things in the course of our entire conversation that yeah. should someone want to pick up on what makes our heinies wiggle. Yeah, it's already there. We've already given a, a. Of course, they have to wade through the entire conversation together. You're right. You're right. But I mean, don't look now. There's actually a sex scene in the third season of don't, of of crashing, where we intercut between me and a, a young lady yeah. and us doing benign activities. That is exactly the, the director Gillian Robespierre. She said, "Have you seen Don't Look Now?" And I said, "Of course." but not of course, but then we did this homage to it. So you're right. We have the recommendations. And how much, uh, if, if parents had uh, been furious that I showed that movie, how much uh, it would have been a missed opportunity because that sex scene more than anything else conveys what parents most hope for their kids. And that's how the, Little daily things like brushing one's teeth with uh, in the presence of one's partner yeah. and all of that are not only are equally intimate, but uh, correspond and inform the intimacy of sex itself. Yeah. And at a time when for so many people, sex has become so mechanical and not uh, they're obtuse to how sacramental it is. Yeah, yeah. What could be more sacramental than the sex scene in Don't Look Now, you know? And that lesson that was well learned of intimacy, when I use the bathroom while Val is in the shower, I think of that lesson where I go, this not in a literal way. This is sex. This is the merging exactly. of two energies. Love. We're You're making love. So there's no boundaries between the two. Exactly. Of us. It's completely exactly. open. And I love it, that. It's, it's funny. I don't want to get us off on a whole other subject. I sort of do, I guess. But it's like 
what made you an Obi-Wan Kenobi or a Morpheus from the Matrix um, was that there was something dangerous. So there's this class that was a little bit naughty. We were watching, like I said, the movie Blow Up. He has a three-way in the movie. I saw a three-way. It sped up. I remember it was sped up. I would have liked to slow it down. I was so pent up as a child. But like, we saw all these things, but just like the archetype of the, I'm not calling you old, but you were the old man in the desert that was going to like show us some, some stuff, some weird stuff. And it was dangerous stuff and it was cheeky stuff. And some of it was grotesque. You would talk to us about David Lynch and you talk about Psycho is about a man who dresses up as his mother. It's fucked up. It's as fucked up as we are. So we were going into the the actual, like Hogwarts, where we were going into the actual library, where the actual hidden texts were, which of course are actually just written inside of ourselves, but we were going to have someone walk us through them. It not it sad in both of our fields, and by the way, I'm all for being appropriate in our language. I think words have power. I think it's important to be respectful and inclusive and loving. But there comes a point where we're like, at what point are we steam cleaning any of the sex and any of the danger and any of the blood dripping from the brownstone ceiling onto the floor from a jealous ghost? How much of that are we sacrificing to have what actually I thought was always just my fundamentalist uh, wet dream was to have everybody being very polite and sweet and uh, wearing starch shirts. Now it seems to be the whole world's agenda to be like, let's neuter and trim and shove and, and, and and paint. Did you say? Tame. Tame. Yeah. There, there, one of the first things I said to you is you gave me a place for my shadow. I've always said that like ugly stand-up or ugly movies can be some of my favorite stuff. Weird Maria Abramovich uh, art installations where a naked woman is covered in her own feces and she screams at you. Is that appropriate? It depends on the context. Yeah. Is there a part of me that feels like a naked woman covered in feces screaming at me? Yes. Does it find expression in a weird West Village 1962 uh, art exhibit that I just walked into because I had to use the bathroom and I ended up being artistically traumatized? I mean, we're losing the danger and the teeth of art and literature while at the same time celebrating it, like when it's popular. and, And creating a safe context for it. We need, you mean we need to create a safe context? Yeah, well, well and, and you, I mean, you are, I hope I did in uh, in the classroom. I yeah. hope that uh, Art of the Film was a safe context. That's right. Don't look now. Uh, and to be cheeky, and please don't perceive what I'm about to say as in any way uh, negating or diminishing the power of everything you just said. But I'm just glad that we did Don't Look Now prior to cell phones, so I didn't have to look out and see anybody um, fingering the Mr. Yeah. <laughs> but, dude, there's no way we would have made it through those movies. You would have had to have us put them in a basket. Yeah. Those movies are long and slow to me now. 
Yeah. I remember you very specifically teaching us that the filmmaker was making Venice an unseen character, yeah. which just blew my mind. I didn't know that that was a thing. But to get to know an inanimate and silent character takes a lot of long, boring yeah. tracking shots. Yeah. That yeah. if I had my phone and I could get a dopamine hit from a Facebook like, it game over. So yeah. we have a lot of things challenging but the word that you use is context and i just my hope and we're not going to solve it today my hope is that we can bring the subtlety back to the conversation of context i know that you were like i said this sort of dangerous it was a little bit iconoclastic it was a little bit cheeky teacher but the context was always safe i never i would have been comfortable leaving I would have been comfortable going like, I don't like this. I'm going to leave. It yeah. was so loving and tribal and 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 almost like summer camp. And but there was an element of like, it was a good secret we were keeping. Can you believe we're watching these these movies? But when you're a kid and you're craving to be spoken to and treated like an adult, because inside you're starting to feel like one. Yeah. But I'm just, you know, when it comes to art and stand-up, that, which is obviously one of my things, that can be wrong, in quotes, in this way, but in the right context, can be so right. That's what I've always said. It's like, you go and see Jim Norton, who's a very dirty stand-up, and you laugh and you're cathartized by it. You're completely cleansed by the filth. Well. That's fine. And we always knew as a culture that that was fine. The problem comes, you posted on your Facebook page, and now 10 a.m. Bill needs to stand in defense of his like of Jim Norton's horrible, whatever, I'm using horrible in quotes, bit in the light of a neon office, and and it doesn't stand up to that scrutiny. So we have no boundaries. How can we create a safe place to have a weird or esoteric or sexual or vague or uh, like weird incestuous themes of psycho. If we don't have any boundaries, everything's just on my Facebook page. You can come and look at it at any time. It's all one thing. It's leading into all, all that we see that's happening in the world. I don't know how many of your fans tune into your podcast, but I'm thinking that, your willingness to make yourself vulnerable in that reference to your father and um, uh, in class. Yeah. You, the, the degree to which you reveal yourself, (laughs) if, if this podcast is characteristic of your (laughs) other podcasts, you know, what, uh, what a contrast must exist for your fans between the intelligence and the questing and the <laughs> analytic, articulate pursuits you have here, as opposed to that comedian with the the cheeks and the and the <laughs> and the. The big white teeth, all yes, of them. Yes, You know? I'll, I'll say this. If somebody comes up to me and they say they're a fan, I, I of course, I love that. If they say I'm a, I'm a weirdo, which is what we call the fans of the podcast, I light up and I, 
I mean, I don't want to say we're family. Let's not go overboard here. But <laughs> there's there's an immediate dropping of the guard where I'm like, oh, that's what I said at the beginning. I was like, this podcast is the purest cut of it. And, and, and that's why I'm so grateful for it. I don't know. This has been, this has been a very meta podcast. We're talking about the podcast. I don't mind, but I do in a very Mr. Brown way. I'm like, I want to make sure I'm not being too self-indulgent, but uh, I fear, I fear I already have been. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't felt that you were self-indulgent at all. I've, uh, you know, it's been a real back and forth conversation. Uh, So, well, I, I feel like this is one of those ones. I know for a fact it is that I'm going to be in a good mood for the for the rest of the day, at least. And you'll and talking about the way our subconscious manifests as moods and feelings and and thoughts. I, in my experience, a conversation like this, uh, you'll just be chopping onions happily, and you'll be like, "I don't know why." And I hope the people listening have that as well, because this is this was a questing. This was a questing. We're we're fighting for these beautiful things. We're sharing beautiful things. We're not having bautism. We're being open. And I am so grateful to you, Mr. Brown. And I wanted it on the record. And I hope let's all freak Mr. Brown out and go to his Facebook page and write him something nice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) You'll, You'll be inundated. I, is there any, do you feel good? Is there anything left out? Uh, just, just um, uh, in medias res, in medias res, in medias res. I, I'm not going to uh, provide any closing uh, remarks because it's all in, we're all in medias res. You know, how can I close when we're in medias res? You know? I love that. And especially, what, you said 36 years? Yeah, it's been 30, wait. Um, I graduated in 97, so it's been uh, 23 years. 23 years. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, not other than sort of technological communiques to not have a conversation and then be here after 23 years. I mean, it's uh, what can be more in Medias Res? I love it. Um, I'm going to... Uh, send out blessings for your restes <laughs> and your mediuses. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Brown. You're going to laugh. This is very silly. It was so meaningful to talk to you today. To end the show, almost to give us something to make it feel like an end, we have the guest say the catchphrase. The catchphrase is keep it crispy. Would you please grace us with a keep it crispy? You mean to just say keep it crispy? That's it. Oh. <laughs> please give us give us a nice isolated keep it crispy. Oh, no. oh keep it crispy is well, as a metaphor and an image is I mean especially since you don't provide any antecedent for your pronoun it um <laughs> so whatever it is may its crispiness, crispiness endure forever <laughs> That was the greatest keep it crispy of all time. Mr. Brown, thank you. We will stay in touch over Facebook. One of the few. Well, let me know when this is aired or whatever it is. I will. You do. uh, Because some other kids from Lexington, some other former students of Lexington or. Oh, yeah. 
some people on my end who might be curious. Of course. We'll, we'll, I'll get you the link so you can share it. All you got to do is paste it. <laughs> oh. I, I know you can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> okay. Thank All you, Mr. Right. Dowd. Thank Happy you so much. <laughs> Your matey is... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Yes, of course. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm so crispy. I'm so crispy. My ice game make you haters want to